Credence Clearwater Revival from 1970, looking out my back door. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, the Druff and Friends show. I am Todd Dan Druff Wittellis. If you listen to the lyrics of that song, you might think it's about drugs. You might think it's about an acid trip. And it sure as hell sounds like it, with him talking about all those uh, weird animals he's seeing out his back door doing all these strange things. Uh, actually, John Fogarty who is a, the writer and producer of this song, claims that it is not about a drug trip. He claims it's not, even though some people have interpreted the flying spoon in the song to be a cocaine spoon, and the rest of it pretty much about an acid trip. John Fogarty has stated in interviews that he actually wrote this for his three-year-old son at the time, and that he was inspired by the Dr. Seuss book and to think I saw it on Mulberry Street of a parade passing by of strange animals. So that's what he claims the song was about. And uh, one thing that's not in doubt is that the song was actually written as a tribute to the form of country music known as the Bakersfield Sound, which was a form of country music that came out of Bakersfield, California in the 50s. Uh, Merle, Merle Haggard, Buck Owens, who's even referenced in that song. So that's what uh, this song was created for, pretty much to give tribute to that. And uh, John Fogarty felt that was a big influence on him. So there's a little music trivia for you. And once again, welcome to the show. Flying solo once again tonight, no co host for me. And always tougher to do the show on my own. But I get by, I get through it. If anybody wants to co-host, you're welcome to volunteer, even if you've never co-hosted before, even if you don't post on the forum. If you're a listener and you think you have what it takes to co-host with me, let me know, and I'll probably give you a shot. 
had someone recently contact me about it, and even though he's not a co-host this week, he probably will be a co-host sometime in the near future. Just a longtime listener here, actually someone I met at the World Series, got put right next to him at a table near the money, and we both busted before the money. <laughs> so, anyway, as usual tonight, we have a free roll. We have that pretty much every week on Poker Fraud Alert Radio, the Druff and Friends show. The free roll takes place on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. This week, we have a very, very large free roll. We have, what is it? I'm, I'm calculating at the last second here because I see some people added to it. We have $132 to give away this week, believe it or not. $132. It started out as 58 but then we got 24 from uh, Mulva, and then we got 50 from C Money, so that adds 74 to the 58, and that makes 132. So ignore the prize information that I posted in the thread. The new prize information, which I'm making up right now from the seat of my pants, is $65 for first place, 30 for second. I guess that gives us 37 left. Uh, 20 for third, 10 for fourth, and 7 for fifth. So 65, 30, 20, 10, and 7. I believe that properly adds up to 132. This week, the donations came from Mulva, $24. C Money, $50. He always gives a lot of money to this free roll, and we appreciate that. L Train Koja, who's given us a lot of money recently, $10 from him. SMI Florida, 25 Denny Deadwood gave 13, and Efton Donkey gave 10. So those are all the donors of this week. Poker Fraud Alert has given away more money in our free rolls of any poker podcast or radio show in the world. We've been doing this for two and a half plus years, and every week a free roll, just about every week, and always somewhere in the neighborhood between 50 and $150 is given away here. So appreciate all the users giving money to the free roll because that's where it's being funded. It's not coming from me. This site makes no money. I don't have the budget for that. I mean, I guess I could reach into my own wallet and do it, but, you know, I'm too much of a cheap Jew to do that. So I thank our users for being less frugal than I am and contributing to this thing. It takes place at 7.40 p.m. Pacific time. It'll be No Limit Hold'em. If you want to qualify for the free money, you have to have a registered account on the Poker Fraud Alert Forum dated June 1st, 2013, or before. If you do not have an account on the Poker Fraud Alert form dated June 1st, 2013, or before, you need to email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, and convince me you've been listening for at least three weeks, and tell me things you've heard on these three shows that are not listed in the show description. So either get more detailed, or tell me things that were not in the description itself. Convince me you've been listening and this way I will know that you're not just showing up for the free roll with no actual interest in the show. You must do that before the free roll starts if you want to qualify for this week. If you want to call me during the show, we have a few phone numbers. The main phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You have to dial star 82 before calling or just disable your caller ID blocking. Just make sure to show your caller ID before calling or you will not get through. You can also reach me on the Mount Charleston line. I have an old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston, which is a mountain near Las Vegas. That number is 
402-430-1808 to wherever I am. 702-430-1808. You have to show your caller ID for that number as well. What if you want to text me? Can you do that? Yes, you can. You can text me at the main phone number, 775-372-8355. I will read your texts on the air unless you ask me not to. You can also follow along if you're listening live in the chat room by clicking on the chat button on the top of the screen. You do need a flash-enabled device. That is, your device cannot be an iPhone or an iPad or you will not be able to get into the chat room. And you need an account on the Poker Fraud Alert forum to get into the chat room. I will try to read the chat, but... I'm going to miss most of it. I'll be honest with you. I'm doing the show. It's hard to read the chat. You're more there to interact with the other users. Some people PM me in the chat room, which is fine. You can do that, but I will sometimes see it. Sometimes I won't. Better to text me if you want to get a hold of me during the show. So I just actually entered the chat room. I actually wasn't even there as I was giving this whole speech. I just came in myself. So anything you've been saying before that, I did not see. And you'll notice if you go in the chat room... The time is all wrong. It says it's like 2.47 p.m. And believe it or not, that's a hard thing to fix. It would take a lot of effort for me to fix this problem with a the clock there. No idea why. No idea why there's a problem with the clock, but I cannot seem to figure out how to fix it. And, hmm, uh-oh. I have some more bad news for you guys. Oh, no, never mind. I thought I lost my app that I use on my phone to look at the text messages you send me to this number. But I found it. Just kind of moved around. All right, so here's some uh, texts I've received since last week's show. You can always text me pretty much whenever you feel like. You want to text me before the show, after, during, I'll get it. So from the 678 area code, I miss Team ML Gay. You know, I miss him sometimes too, but many other times I'm happy he's gone. Team ML Gay is good in limited quantities. Let's see. From the 704 area code, can you talk more about angle shots next week? The example you gave where the guy said raise and tried to fake wine to call seemed like a fake tell. What am I missing? How would you have ruled if you were the floor man? Uh, we're talking about uh, an EPT event that took place a few years ago, but I played the video last week of a guy who had a full house on the river and he wanted to get a bet and a raise out of his opponent who he presumed had top pair or something like that. Indeed, his opponent did have top pair. So what he did was after his opponent bet, he said raise and they said, oh, no, 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 I mean call, 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 I mean call. And when you do that in a tournament, if you say raise, the rule is you have to min raise at that point. If you say min raise, if you, say, you can actually do more than the min raise if you want, but if you say raise you have to, at the very least, do a min-raise. And he did this. He knew he wanted to raise. He wasn't pretending to be, you know, he wasn't confused. He was pretending to be confused. But he did that to induce a call to his raise from something like top pair, thinking that if he's displaying such wishy-washiness, saying raise, oh, no, 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 I called, that his opponent will think he might be weak and will want to call him. And it worked. His opponent did call him. Uh, The floor man came over and said that this guy had done it twice before in the same tournament. Twice before in the same tournament. And both times got away with it, and both times had a really strong hand. So the floor man warned the guy, the opponent, that uh, he's making a min-raise, and that the last two times he did this in the same tournament, he was really strong. This is a trick he keeps pulling. So 
what they're asking me here is, what would I have done if I were the floor man? What would I have done if I was the floor man is I would have warned the guy the first time this happened. I would have made him min-raise the first time, and then I would have said, if you do this again, you're going to be disqualified from the tournament, so don't do it. This is your one and only warning. This time you get away with it. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt this time that it was an accident, even though you have a monster, even though it's obviously your angle shooting, but I will let you get away with it this time, but anything like this happens again, you're gone. I'm disqualifying you. There's no way I would have let this happen for a third time in the same tournament. Even if I hadn't warned the guy, if he'd done it three times as the tournament director, I would have kicked him out. The tournament director can kick anyone out for any reason. And I don't think this guy would have had much luck appealing this or complaining to the superiors of the tournament director, given what he'd been doing. That's what I would have done. This is about another angle shot, this text I got. 954 area code. This is about uh, Doug Lee last week, who angle shot by saying all in 2 million when he really had like 1.3, 1.4 million in order to induce a fold from a big stack who didn't want to call off 2 million. This person texts me from the 954 with the poker room manager. Why not ask him if that situation happened in that room last night? How would he, how would he rule? Oh no, sorry. It's about a different, uh, different thing. He's texting. Is it Dougley the angle shot? This is a different text. I was reading about something else there. The big stack should have asked for a count. Also with being able to call in all in, in the cash game, losing and picking up your chips and leaving, this is the dealer's fault, dealing the board before raking in the player's chips. I've seen people do this at Isles Casino Popano. <laughs> I've always tell dealer rake chips first so I don't get angled. It's a good point. I mean, he's trying to say that uh, you know whatever's put in, take that out and put them into the pot, whatever is already put in, and then say how much more is it. Which is... A good idea. I mean, you shouldn't just take the player's word for it when he says all in two million. But Doug Lee was definitely angle shooting there. There's no question. Seven to six. Oh, area code. Todd, I just signed up for Poker Fraud Alert under the name Degen Gambler. I've listened to your radio show for about six months. I was hoping you could discuss tipping for tournaments, cash games, blackjack, and video poker. For example, if you hit a royal on the $5 machine for twenty grand, how much would you tip? He's referring to video poker where uh, if you're playing $5 per credit, which is actually $25 per hand because you're doing five credits at a time, and you hit a royal for 20000 which is what you get, how much do you tip? We'll talk about this later. I don't want to make that the lead story here, but we'll talk about this later about what the appropriate tips, in my opinion, are. But keep in mind, it's my opinion. The appropriate amount of tip is really what you feel is the appropriate amount of tip. What I tell you you should tip, what someone else tells you is not necessarily what you should do. You should do what you feel is right. Of course, there is a general guide as to what is customary and what most people do. And I'll tell you that, and I'll tell you what I think you should do about tipping. And I know we have dealers listening to this show, too, and I... You know, I don't want to crap all over them and tell people not to tip the dealers. Uh, you know, dealers do work for tips, and I don't think it's right to not tip them at all. I also think that you can overtip, but of course, it's always up to you. But I'll, I'll give you my opinion on all that stuff later. So, thank you for the text message about that. If you want to text me anything else, seven seven five three seven two eight three five five, and. Uh, 
people are claiming the sound went out of the show for about a minute. That's not good. Hope that was only for that one person saying that. So, let me give you the agenda this week, what we're going to be talking about on the show aside from the tipping issue. The details about what Ray Bittar forfeited when the government made their case against him, those have come out. We now know what the government got from Ray Bittar aside from his interest in full tilt poker. So I'll give you that list and talk about whether I believe Ray Bittar got off easy or if he paid his price, if he paid the right price. We've talked on this show for a few weeks now about this private world account on 2 plus 2. It's an account that claims to be a high-stakes player, slightly under 45, and claims to know a whole lot of different things about the nosebleed stakes community, especially in live poker. And it's been fascinating to a lot of people on 2 Plus 2, even though this person has never verified his identity or even proven that he was really part of the high-stakes scene and isn't just making all this up for fun. Now, some people have come out and said that this guy seems to know his stuff, so it's likely that he does have some inside knowledge, but it's still not known who it is. I have been saying on this show that I'm going to try to figure it out myself, and I have been taking some steps to do that. I haven't completed that yet, so I don't have anything to tell you, but I have been tipped, not tipped in the way we're going to talk about with tipping the dealer, but I've gotten some tips from some in the know on this situation from Kayosenti, shall I say, have given me some tips regarding private world and private world. He might not be a high stakes player from the community. No private world may be several high stakes players. Yeah. Maybe a shared account of several in the high stakes community. We'll talk about that. Well, Amaya Gaming, the owners of Poker Stars and Full Tilt, have been cutting pros from their roster. When I say cutting pros, I don't mean they're banning pro poker players in their sites, but they've been cutting sponsored pros, ones who are paid in some way, shape, or form to represent these sites. They have determined that these pros are not worth what they're being paid, that the whole model of having a whole lot of pros on your roster that are getting some kind of payment is just not really bringing in very much business. And I've been saying that for years. I agree with them. But they've been mostly terminating either B-list pros or pros that are uh, you know, fairly well-known but not really big names in poker. Well, they've now taken it up another level. They have terminated two big names in poker, from Full Tilt as sponsored pros. One of them, Gus Hansen. The other one, Victor Blom. Isildur is gone. Gus Hansen is gone. They are no longer sponsored pros on Full Tilt. Why was this done? Well, probably for cost-cutting, probably because they're not carrying their weight as far as new players they're bringing to the site versus what they're paid. But Amaya has a really odd explanation for why they did this, and I'll read that to you and give you my opinion about why they did that. 
Well, this site's called Poker Fraud Alert. We talk about a lot of things that involve scams and scandals in the poker world on this show. But usually I'm just covering stories that are being covered elsewhere. These are typically not stories that were brought to Poker Fraud Alert first, but we're just talking about them here, maybe getting more in-depth into these stories or maybe further investigating these stories, maybe bringing further attention to these stories. But a lot of times the stories talked about on the show do not originate here. Well, here is one that does originate here. There is a player named Douglas Conway. This is his real name, and his name online is Fatal Flaws. A member on Poker Fraud Alert is accusing him of welching on a $1,000 bet. But where this becomes more interesting is the excuse that Douglas Conway has been giving for why he won't pay. And he even showed up on Poker Fraud Alert to post that same excuse that he'd been telling this guy privately. So we'll talk about what's going on there and whether these excuses Douglas Conway is giving could possibly be valid. By the way, if you don't get to hear that segment, I just suggest don't make any bets with Douglas Conway. Phil Halmuth, he's back in the news. He was offered, along with his wife, an appearance on the ABC show Wife Swap. (laughs) If you're a woman, would you ever want to swap husbands where the husband you get is Phil Halmuth? I mean, I guess monetarily that's an upgrade, but uh, beyond that, I don't know. <laughs> but Phil Helmy has been married a long time. A lot of people don't even realize he's married. He actually has a uh, kid. I think his name is Nick. But his kid is actually over 21. So Phil Helmy is actually a family man. He's been married to the same woman, you know, the mother of his kids, for over 20 years. Uh, by all accounts, he's actually a good father and a good husband. He is not like a lot of high-profile poker players who cheat on their wives and disappear for long periods of time and get into drugs and super degenerate gambling. As far as the family element is concerned, Helmuth has a pretty good reputation for that, even though a lot of people don't really know that much about it. In fact, a lot of people don't even realize he's married or that he's been married for over 20 years. I guess it's partially because people still picture Phil Helmuth as a big kid when in reality he's approaching 50 years old. Anyway, Phil Helmuth was offered to appear on the show Wife Swap. A lot of you have probably seen his Carl's Jr. commercials. In fact, they've been airing during the baseball playoffs. I thought that was kind of stupid, like a stupid commercial, because most people don't recognize Phil Helmuth if you're not in poker. Like if you're in poker at all, you probably know who Phil Helmuth is, but if you're not, you won't know who he is. So I, I think they wasted their money with getting Phil Helmuth for this hamburger commercial. But that's not what we're really going to talk about here. We're going to talk about Phil Helmuth and his invite to the show Wife Swap, which is not as salacious as it sounds. Wife Swap is not like the 70s wife swap practices where you really would swap your wife in the bedroom with another man where you'd have sex with another guy's wife and he'd have sex with your wife. Now, nobody was going to be having sex with Phil Helmuth's wife, but uh, it's actually a show where they switch households and the wife of one household goes in the other and vice versa and they both kind of tackle each other's problems and each other's family issues and household issues, whatever. 
for those of you that are married, have you ever wondered, like, if you were married to someone different, how would your wife handle things differently than your current wife? You know, how would she be as a mother compared to your current wife? How would she be as, as far as getting along with you and dealing with the issues that come up in the home? Uh, how would she be as far as the way the house is kept or with money? Or just as a person, as a companion? Have you wondered, if I was with someone different, how different would my life be? I'm sure a lot of people have wondered that. So that's what the show Wife Swap tries to answer. And of course, I'm sure a lot of it is scripted, and a lot of it is not what it appears to be on TV. I don't even watch it. I know of it, but I don't watch it. I don't watch those stupid reality shows. But Phil Hellmuth was invited to be on it and turned it down. So we'll talk about why he turned it down, and I'll tell you about a reality show that I was invited to, I think it was 13 years ago or 12 years ago, somewhere around there. I was invited to a TV show, a reality show, a major network reality show, and I turned it down. I'll tell you what that show was and why I did not want to take part in it. Well, if you want a sports bet and you don't want to use one of these illegal online sports betting sites and you live in the U.S., there's one place you can do it. That's Nevada. That's the only place you can do sports betting. And if you live in Nevada, you can actually even do online sports betting through certain apps. or You have to go through a long process to establish an account and everything like that, but you have to be within the borders of Nevada. But... The takeaway here is that Nevada has been the only place sports betting has been legal in the United States. It's never been legal in New Jersey, despite the large gambling mecca known as Atlantic City in New Jersey. You cannot bet on sports there. Well, starting this weekend, you might be able to. But the various sports leagues, such as the NCAA the NFL, they are trying to fight this and stop sports betting in New Jersey. We'll talk about what's going on there. A while back we mentioned Breakout Gaming, which is an upcoming online casino and poker site that's going to use a cryptocurrency for your bankroll on there. Your bankroll will not be in dollars, it'll be in breakout coins. Now, you may say, what's a breakout coin? Is it similar to a Bitcoin? The answer is, yeah, kind of. Well, they're going to be creating their own cryptocurrency that is somehow tied to Bitcoin. And that is what you would be using on that site to gamble with. A lot of people have been very, very skeptical of this, the whole thing. They think the whole thing has fail written all over it. And I think I agree. But... They have a new person on board who's been consulting with them. David Gzesh, who started True Poker in 2001. He was the former CEO of True Poker. He is now involved in breakout gaming, and he has answered some questions about it on 2 Plus 2. So I will read to you what David Gzesh said about breakout gaming, and I will tell you whether I think he is full of crap or whether they really are onto something. I think you have a feeling, I think you know what I'm probably going to say, at least my general tone toward breakout gaming. But I'll explain why. Well, 
we've talked about cheaters in poker over the years here. And how many cheaters, how many poker cheaters have I reported that have been arrested? Very few. And the few that have been arrested usually have been cheating at live venues where they're caught doing things like sneaking in chips or whatever. But you really don't see any online poker cheaters arrested. It just doesn't seem to happen. It should happen, but it doesn't. For a lot of reasons I won't bother getting into right now. Well, a UK poker player has been arrested and he's also been charged. And while it's not entirely clear exactly what he did, it seems that his charges stem from both multi-accounting and affiliate scamming. So we'll talk about what happened there and how you can get arrested in the UK for cheating in online poker. Love to see that happen in the US. Nolan Dalla has been around in a lo- for a long time in the poker world. He's been a poker player. He's been in the poker media. He runs his own blog. He even wrote a blog six years ago bashing me for appearing on 60 Minutes and saying, quote, irresponsible things about the gaming industry, you know, because I, I dared say that sites like Full Tilt Poker might not have been on the up and up. I dared question that the current sites at the time in 2008 uh, weren't necessarily all that they seemed. And <laughs> that was a terrible, irresponsible thing I did, according to Nolan Dalla. But I'm going to play a rant he did on Poker Night in America. It's a TV show he's involved with. Regarding Daniel Coleman, and this time I agree with Nolan Dalla, we'll hear what he had to say. We will attempt to call the Arizona Amy's Bakery tonight. We've been trying the last few weeks, and I just learned, thanks to one of our listeners, that somehow they have these incoming Skype calls blocked. So I'm going to call them through a back doorway where I'll get through, and we'll see if they answer their phone. I will try this fairly soon so they won't close. Finally, editorial for tonight. I've talked in the recent past about the horrible practice in the U.S. known as civil forfeiture. Civil forfeiture means that your stuff can be seized from you for any reason, just from the, quote, suspicion of a crime, and that it's very difficult to get the stuff back even if you're never charged with a crime. In fact, the strange thing about civil forfeiture is that they actually can charge your stuff with a crime and not you. And basically, if you can't prove that your stuff is innocent, then they get to keep it and sell it or use it however they want. I'm not even kidding. They can really charge your money or your assets with a crime, and it's considered guilty until proven innocent, your stuff. Sounds like a joke, but it's the truth. So this week... I'm going to give some tips on how to avoid becoming a victim of civil forfeiture because there are police forces out there that have been instructed by the powers that be above them, by mayors, by city managers, by whoever they answer to, to look for cars, to pull over and seize their stuff. I'll tell you who they target. I'll tell you what to say if you get pulled over. I'll tell you what not to say, and I'll give you some general tips on how to avoid being pulled over by one of these civil forfeiture police scams in the first place. So yes, I'm going to teach you how to protect yourself against the police, against corrupt police working for a corrupt system. 
So um, what they're doing there should really be illegal. So I have no problem teaching people or advising people how better to avoid these situations where the government will steal your money. So that'll be the end of the show. Looking at the chat room right now, JSTAT says, Nolan Dalla asked me for YouTube pointers during the World Series of Poker. I told him if he was going to do a long rant, keep the camera plugged into the AC since his battery ran out in one. Interesting. Anyway, let's get on with the first topic. Free roll starting in half an hour. Get registered, get in there. You have 25 minutes after it starts for late registration. So let's talk about Ray Batar. Ray Batar was one of the principals of Full Tilt. He was the CEO of Full Tilt. He was a member of the four-person board that really made consequential decisions at Full Tilt, the other three being Chris Ferguson, Howard Lederer, and Rafe First. These four were responsible for stealing your money. These four were the ones who made the decision to take money that was supposed to belong to the players and spend it elsewhere. They were the ones who made the decision to give people credit for deposits that they had not actually collected the money for yet, figuring they'll figure out how to collect from these people later when their payment processor was down. These are the people who kept distributing money to the full tilt owners, even though the company was borrowing from player balances at the same time. These are the ones who decided it was okay to steal player balances because there's no way everyone will ever have to cash out at once. There's no way that'll ever occur, so there's no way we'll ever know. They can operate with a certain percentage of player funds on hand, knowing that there will be the vast majority of people not asking for their money. So since there's 0% chance that anything would have ever happened to where 100% of the people would need the money at the same time, Ray Batar and company decided it was fine to steal or at least borrow the rest of the money. <laughs> no chance of that unless maybe the government busts you and then you have to pay everyone at once and you don't have the money. In fact, you have almost none of it. So this is an addition to the fact that they were operating illegally in the first place. It was not legal to operate a real money poker site in the U.S. when Black Friday came down on April 15, 2011. And Ray Batar was indicted and he was charged. And Ray Batar ended up not getting a prison sentence. Ray Batar somehow came up with, I think through his lawyers, a ridiculous excuse that he's having heart issues and he needs heart surgery. And for that reason, he's not compatible with prison. His treatment is not compatible with a prison environment and therefore he should not spend any time in prison. <laughs> That's a new one. I committed a crime, but I don't want to go to prison because I'm not compatible with it. My body's not compatible with it. I didn't understand why he couldn't just have the heart surgery, recover, and then once he's recovered, put in prison. But somehow they accepted the, the argument that he's not compatible with prison and let him off as far as the prison portion of the penalty. Now, Ray Batar was forced to surrender, 
a number of things to the U.S. government. Because you have to remember, this whole thing, this whole Black Friday was all about money. The Department of Justice came down on Full Tilt and Poker Stars and UB, believing that they would enrich themselves with huge money because these sites were making so much. Then they found out the unfortunate truth. While Poker Stars had a lot of money, Full Tilt was broke and had stolen all the money, and UB was broke and stolen all the money. So two of the three sites they busted turned out to be broke. So they did end up getting something out of Ray Batar, which went all into the government coffers. Uh, he was, uh, as I said before, he was uh, possibly going to get as much as 35 years behind bars for what he did, but he got out of it because of that stupid heart thing. He did forfeit $40 million worth of cash and assets related to this Black Friday indictment. So here is what Ray Batar gave up to the U.S. government. These assets were all in the name of Raymond Batar or Raymond Jack Batar. So he had 18 bank accounts. Here were his 18 bank accounts that he gave up to the government. They just took it. Two at the Royal Bank of Scotland International. Three at the Bank of Ireland. One at the Bank of Scotland, Ireland, which is based in Ireland. Two at the National Irish Bank in Ireland. One at Allied Irish Bank in Ireland. Five accounts at the Bank of Valletta in Malta. Two accounts at Wirecard Bank AG in Germany. And two accounts at Comerica Bank here in the good old U.S. He also gave up a few properties to the government. He gave up four homes and commercial properties in California. He had two homes in Terre Haute, Indiana. Don't know why he had that. It's kind of a weird place to own additional homes. I guess he thought uh, Terre Haute, Indiana was a very, very picturesque vacation spot. (laughs) I I don't know what he was doing there. Maybe he had family there or whatever. And uh, then he also gave up... uh, a 10% stake in a resort vacation unit in Bermuda. So Ray Batar, in addition to very poorly managing Full Tilt and stealing all the money from there, he also was dumb enough to buy into a timeshare in Bermuda. That's what they're talking about here, one-tenth ownership in a resort vacation unit in Bermuda. What that means is he owned a timeshare where this one particular unit, he could come there... 10% 10% of the time every year. Let me tell you guys about timeshares. Before I go on with this Ray Batari thing, let me tell you about timeshares. Do not ever, 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 ever buy a timeshare from the company that is selling the timeshares. In general, timeshares are a bad idea, but if you really want one, if you really want one, you can get them for a severe cut rate on the secondary market. What I mean by the secondary market is people who bought the timeshares realize that they bought overpriced crap and want to sell it. So you go to these presentations that give you like a free hotel room and a free steak dinner, and they push and push and push, and they convince you 
that you're making a wonderful investment, that not only you're going to have this timeshare that's in this beautiful property that you're going to enjoy for vacation every year, but it's going to do nothing but go up in value. In reality, the prices are amazingly inflated. And what seems like a reasonable price, like you'll buy something for 50000 and then go, oh, wow, 50000 for a piece of a vacation home, that sounds great. No, it's not. Not if uh, you only have a tiny piece of it. So you can buy that same $50,000 timeshare on the secondary market for like 5000 sometimes. I'm not even kidding. Many, many times less than the original price is what you can buy on the secondary market. I don't just mean the crap timeshares. I mean all timeshares. You will always get an awful deal when you buy a timeshare on the primary market. And they're always ending up on the secondary market for many reasons. People have buyer's remorse. People get divorced. People just get sick of going to the same place over and over. That's the problem with the timeshare is that when you don't have a timeshare and you just decide where you want to travel, you go to a variety of different places for vacation. But it gets monotonous to go to the same place over and over and over, year after year, stay in the exact same spot. You get tired of it. And that's putting aside the fact that you probably massively overpaid in the first place for your timeshare. But anyway, uh, Ray Batar, using our money, probably bought a first market timeshare and paid way too much for it in Bermuda. You think with all the money that Ray Batar stole that he could have afforded a full unit in Bermuda rather than 10% stake through a timeshare, but that's what he did. Now, he also had, would you believe, 23 separate corporate entities that all added up to be Full Tilt. So Full Tilt had a bunch of different names in a bunch of different ways uh, related to the different functions of the company. So the software function, the marketing function, they split it up into 23 different parts at least. So here are the 23 corporate entities that had to do with Full Tilt that Ray Batar had shares in, or full ownership. Tiltware LLC, Pocket Kings Limited, BT Management, Domain Limited, Philco Holdings Limited, Philco Limited, Fitzroche Limited, Graybell Limited, Irolo Limited, Colmia Corporation, Ludus Limited, uh, Media Management GmbH, MyWest Nook Limited, MyWest Nook Limited? The hell does that even mean? Oxalic Limited, Orinic Limited, Pocket Kings Consulting Limited, Pocket Kings Limited, Ranston Limited, Real Kings LLC, uh, Recop Limited, by the way, Recop, R-E-K-O-P is poker spelled backwards, Ross Bull Limited, Ruland Joyce Limited, Tiltproof Limited, Tiltware LLC, Tiltware Merchandise Services LLC, and last but not least, Vantage Limited. So he gave up ownership and equity interest in all 23 of these corporate entities that all pretty much were full tilt. And when the government was prosecuting, most of these were mentioned in the prosecution documents, but uh, when Ray Batar agreed to cooperate, he revealed the rest. Uh, So he gave up all that stuff. And, And basically what he did there is he gave up his full ownership in full tilt, as did all the other full tilt owners in exchange for nobody getting prosecuted. And then the government then took full tilt poker and said, okay, who wants to buy this? And poker star says, me, 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 me. And poker stars 
slap down $750 million to buy what the government had seized from Ray Batari and friends. And then from that 750 the government took about 150 of it and is using that to pay back the players through this uh, laborious remissions process that we've all had to go through. So that's what Ray Batar gave up. It all added up to about $40 million of assets they claim. Sounds like it would be more with the full tilt stuff, but that's what they claim. And I just think it's ridiculous. This guy guy didn't see a single day in jail, not for operating an illegal online poker site and not for stealing all the money from that illegal online poker site. I mean, he didn't personally steal it all, but he was making the decisions. He and three others were making the decisions. In fact, he was the primary one making the decisions that led to the money being stolen. And somehow not a day in jail because his heart is incompatible with jail. Isn't that sweet? Um, this is from the forum, Forum Wars, not the forum, from the chat room. Forum Wars says, found a site that says Ray Batar lived in Terre Haute before Los Angeles. Raymond Batar has lived in Los Angeles, California, Terre Haute, Indiana, has worked at Bright Training LLC and Poker Wire Radio. That's funny, Poker Wire Radio. Uh, Poker Wire was once a poker news site during the poker boom around like 2005, 2006 that was directly an offshoot of Full Tilt. It was a subsidiary of Full Tilt. And it eventually folded. I remember Andy Block, uh, he gave his girlfriend a full-time job at Poker Wire. I remember seeing his girlfriend all the time doing reporting for Poker Wire, and she got that job because Andy Block was pretty high up at Full Tilt, and uh, you know he got her that job there. Bobby Orr pointing out none of the bankers who crashed the market have spent a day in, a day in jail either. All right, guess both are wrong. JSTAT saying, I, hara- I got harassed by a timeshare salesperson at Harvey's Tahoe and got so pissed I complained to Harvey's. They were gone by my next visit there. Yeah, never. I mean, those timeshares are so shady. And some people think, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the free stuff they offer me for going to these timeshare presentations and then I won't buy. Well, okay. If you're 100% sure, if you're 100, not 99, but 100% sure that you're going to be completely closed to ever purchasing a thing from them, no matter what they say or no matter how convincing they are, and if you want to waste the time there, and if you're ready to deal with the fact that they're probably going to give you something not quite what they promised, then fine. Yes, you can get a free two-night stay in Vegas for going to some timeshare presentation. I, I have a friend who did that. I have a friend who was in Vegas recently and I asked him, where did you stay? And he ended up staying at the, uh, the the Hilton timeshares over there, the Hilton Grand Vacations. He stayed in one of those over there. And it was a timeshare presentation for Hilton Grand Vacations. And he had a good experience with it. He said that he dealt with a woman who recognized pretty quickly that he was not going to buy anything. And she said, okay, well, look, we've got to go through the motions here. And they, they went through the motions for half an hour. And then she gave him his stuff. And, you know, so he got his two-night stay at 
Hilton gratifications, and he was very proud of himself. So, okay, you know, great. But to me, it just seems like too much trouble. And unless you're really, really poor, and that's the only way you can stay in Vegas, it just seems like too much trouble to go through all that just to get like a two-night stay in Vegas. And unfortunately, a lot of people get tricked into buying. They show up there thinking, oh, I'm just going to use them for the free hotel, the free flight, whatever they're promising you. And then they get tricked into it. They go, oh, this doesn't seem like such a bad idea after all. Wow, this seems like a good deal. Wow, this guy makes sense. It's never a good deal. Never, never, never. Anytime you go to any of these presentations where they give you something free to attend, it is absolutely, positively, never a good deal. Forum Wars, by the way, saying in chat, looking back, so many things Tilt did were shady. I agree. I will say that I did not suspect that they were stealing the money. Just like everybody, I was shocked when I found that out. But I will say that I noticed shady things that they were doing along the way that didn't sit too well with me. They're terrible customer service. Uh, a lot of things that they did, or they were uh, constantly not following the rules of the World Series regarding marketing and logos and doing their own thing and saying, screw the rules, we're going to do what we want. And I just thought, this is not indicative of an honest company. I had a weird issue with them where I wanted to put a lot of money on there to play in the high-stakes games. And they weren't letting me. They were keeping me at laughably low deposit limits of like $1,000 or a week or something crazy like that and said I have to build it up over time. I have to deposit 1000 wait, and deposit another 1000 wait, and maybe after six months they'll, they'll up me higher. So I'm trying to t- you know, convince them I've been around forever. I have a very good reputation. You know, I can prove I have the money. No, they weren't raising my limits. They said, I know such and such has high limits. I don't care. We're not, you know, we're not doing it. Well, they insisted to me in email that there's absolutely positively no way I can ever get my limits raised. No matter what, no matter who I know, you know, someone I knew who's a red pro there said to name them. So I did. I said, I, you know, such and such person told me, to, you know, that uh, I'm friends with him, that he said it's fine. They didn't care. They, they actually wrote me back an obnoxious letter. Uh, while you may think we are impressed that you know such and such, uh, that does not uh, change our decision with you at all. Something obnoxious like that. So I went back to the guy and I said, hey, look what they told me. He said, hang on, I'll take care of it. And the next day my limits were raised to 50000 And I'm going, that's just so shady. Like, first, they're just unrealistically difficult about it and obnoxious with me about it. And then this guy just magically gets it fixed for me. I also once had my chat taken away because I was arguing with someone on there. Someone I knew from another site that I didn't get along with. So we were arguing in chat. The person complained about me, and I got my chat taken away. So I said, look, I admit I said some offensive things, but so did they. So why do they still have chat? So they said, okay, you're right. We'll suspend their chat for the same amount of time. So I wasn't thrilled with this, but I said, okay, at least it's fair. At least we both lose our chat for a month. Like they said, we're both, you know, we're both going to lose it. So a week later, I'm noticing that this person can change the, like the smileys and the frowns you know, you can make your, your avatar on their frown or smile or whatever. If you can't chat for whatever reason, it would not let you do that. You were stuck with a neutral expression on your face. Well, I noticed that this person was switching the expressions on their avatar's face, which meant they still had chat. 
So I asked someone who knew them, and apparently this person bragged to our mutual acquaintance that Full Tilt restored their chat days after taking it away, but asked them never to chat while I'm around so I don't see it. But this person didn't realize that uh, you know changing the way your avatar looks with the smiles and the frowns was also indicative that you had chat. So they thought they could do that around like you know with me there, and I wouldn't notice anything being wrong. But they they were actually told by Full Tilt support, hey, when you see Dandruff here, don't chat because you're supposed to not have chat. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine poker stars ever saying that? Pretend you don't have chat when this guy's around. But that that's what they said to this person. So then I wrote to them again, and I said, this is crap, what are you doing? Totally unfair. And they said, sorry about that, we'll restore your chat too. So then suddenly we all had chat again. So these things are not indicative that you're going to get your money stolen from there, but definitely not the signs of a honest poker site that deals in a straightforward fashion. Forum Wars, by the way, saying that uh, one of the Terra Hot properties looks like a motel he must have owned, and one looks like a sentimental childhood home. So it's like uh, one of them was where he grew up, and one of them looks like a motel he owned. Interesting. He must have some connection to Terra Hot, Indiana. Someone asking, was the person that I got suspended for Schoenfeld? No, it wasn't Schoenfeld. It wasn't anyone any guys know. In fact, it was a, a person that I later became semi-friendly with. We got over our chat issues and actually uh, got past it all and got along. So, Pitar should have gone to prison. He should have spent a long time in prison for what he did. I don't care about his heart. You need surgery, get your surgery. You need to recover from surgery, get your recovery. And then when you're done recovering, then you go to prison. I believe he probably had heart surgery, but he was probably going to have it anyway and then use that as an excuse. He probably said, ah, perfect, perfect. I have heart surgery coming up. I'm going to claim that for that reason I can't go to prison. And it worked. Why the government would ever say okay to that, I have no idea, unless they just wanted their money and be done with it. It's probably why. The sensible answer to that is, okay, get your treatment, And as soon as you're done recovering, you're going to prison. And if somehow you die before you recover, okay, then don't go to prison. Then you'll be in the ground. But here, Ray Batar can go on living, you know, 30, 40, 50 more years and never spend a day in prison as a result of this. Crazy. Well, let's talk about the 2 plus 2 private world account. As I've said on previous shows, it's an account that's still posting actively on 2 Plus 2 and is claiming that it knows everything about what goes on in the world of high-stakes poker. There have been cheating accusations against people. There's been a lot of trash talk against people in the high-stakes community. The account loves to gossip. At one point, the account said, oh, I made all this up, sorry, but then later recanted that uh, explanation and said, I only said that because I was told to say that, or I was uh, only said that to divert attention from the fact that I was giving out facts, but yeah, I've been telling the truth the whole time, which is what I actually think was going on. I didn't think that was a true confession. Felt like a 
confession that was manufactured. It felt like a confession that was disingenuine. So there's been a lot of speculation as to who is Private World. A lot of people think it might be Viffer. But I've had two different sources tell me that Private World is posting from several IP addresses on 2 plus 2 in Las Vegas and Los Angeles and that it appears to be a shared account. Now, I'm not entirely convinced yet for a few reasons. Number one, it always seems to have the same writing style. It's a crappy writing style. It's a somewhat illiterate writing style, but nonetheless, it is a writing style and it seems pretty consistent from one post to the next. Maybe there's a few exceptions, but for the most part... Uh, the person writes in a very strange and uh, kind of hard to decipher manner. But it's hard for me to believe that they all got together and agreed upon this really weird writing style and all have kept to it so well. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. But it is said that there are several IPs in different locations that are being used to post these messages. Now, there's a few explanations for this to where it may not be several people. It's possible, for example, that someone is just traveling around a lot, constantly going to different locations between L.A. and Vegas. Maybe it's a guy who has a few places he lives in L.A., a few places he lives in Vegas, a girlfriend he visits, his mom, whatever. Like, he goes to, like, you know, I I could post on 2 Plus 2 and come up with a lot of different IPs that appear to be residential IPs in both L.A. and Vegas. I really could. That would not mean I was six different people. So I'm not convinced. It's not like it's L.A. and Atlantic City where it's very hard to travel between the two. This is L.A. and Vegas. You can drive between them within you know, four hours. And it's also possible that he is intentionally confusing people by getting friends who live in L.A. and other parts of Vegas to post messages he writes. So he'll like email someone and say, hey, can you go on this account and post on 2 plus 2? I mean, I could do that. I could I could use some of you guys. We have listeners all over the world. I could email our listener in Sweden and say, hey, can you post this for me? I could email a listener in Australia and say, hey, can you post this for me? I could email a listener in the UK, can you post this for me? I could email the listener in New Jersey, post this. And I could be appearing to be all over the world at the same time. And it would be messages really from me that you could tell were written by me, yet you'd see IP addresses, legitimate IP addresses, that are all over the world. And you'd say, what the hell is he doing? And you might think, okay, maybe I'm using a proxy or hacking computers. And the truth would be very simple, very simple and low-tech. I'm sending messages for other people to copy and paste and post under my account. So it could be something as simple as that. So I'm still looking into the actual IP addresses involved and trying to figure out what they're attached to and figuring out if these really are residential homes, whose homes. Pretty much I'm trying to unmask who this really is. Don't have an answer for you yet, but hopefully I will soon. Or hopefully I'll know more than I know now. But the current running theory, and I've heard from a few different people who have seen the IP addresses that it is several people in the high-stakes community getting together because they're tired of what's going on with Tom Dwan. And that's why they made the account is to pretty much 
bring attention to the Tom Dwan situation and also bring attention to other things going on in the high-stakes world that they are not happy about. It's pretty much an account to expose to the public the dirty little secrets of the high-stakes poker world. And that's possible. That might be very possible, and that might be what's happening here. But I'm going to look further into it. But right now, the information we have, which is reliable information, is that it has several IPs in both Los Angeles and Las Vegas. By the way, can you guys believe the Giants? They're up 5 nothing after six innings against uh, Kansas City. Jay Stead has to remind me of that. He, he's the Giants fan here. So, all right, looks like the hottest team's going to win. I mean, Kansas City's pretty damn hot, too, since they hadn't lost a game yet. But these are two really hot teams facing one another, and something has to give. And Madison Bumgarner has been great in the postseason. So I guess, uh, at least for game one, it's looking good for the Giants, and this is in Kansas City. By the way, SimpDog offered $50 if anyone can guess the score of Game 1. And I guess he's going to roll it over if nobody can guess it right and give 100 for Game 2 if nobody gets it. So, wow. All right. I'm being asked, can you call the bakery? I will. I'm going to call the bakery because last week I waited too late. Last week I figured out, thanks to one of the users here, that somehow they were blocking the Skype calls. I don't even understand how or why they're doing it. Maybe they got a lot of pranks from Skype and blocked... I I don't know what they did. I can't imagine they're technical enough over there at the bakery to do that, but for whatever reason, Skype won't put the calls through. So I have to do it through an alternate means, which uh, I will do. And... uh, Take a second here, but I will call the bakery now. And if you remember the premise of the prank call, I'm going to pretend to be from Microsoft and that their computer has been hacked. I hope they have a computer there. We're probably going to end up getting Sammy, who is the husband. It's a husband and wife owner. They're they're both equally crazy. I think maybe Amy, the female owner, is even crazier than Sammy, but it's a close one. We're probably going to get Sammy. Apparently, he's the one who answers. This is Amy's Baking Company. And we're going to try to call them. And this this might be a fail call because they probably get a lot of pranks because there's been a lot of publicity about this restaurant and all its antics and all the really messed up things they've done to the customers, including, like, pulling knives on customers that they have arguments with. I mean, screaming at people. Abusing the customers every way you can imagine and stealing from the staff. Just bad stuff here. Oops. Oops. That's what I got. Okay, so that's what I got last time. That was when I called through Skype. So now we're going to make the call through not Skype. Just wanted to see if that worked. And it didn't. So we're going to call through not Skype now through my secret way of getting through and see what happens. Oops. There we go. Almost there. 
Let's see what we get through here. Calls. If you are a solicitor, please hang up now. Uh-oh. To automatically unblock your name and number for this call. Ah, uh, jeez. Okay. Looks like I have to do even more to get through. I have to unblock my call. What a pain in the ass. All right, screw it. I'll, I, will, I will do it. Not screw it. I mean, I'll, I'll do what I got to do. I, I'm going to get through here. I'm going to get through. Last try. I think this one's going to work. It's the most effort I've ever put in to making a prank call get through. I hope it's worth it. It's ringing on the other line I'm using to call. Hello? Yes? Yeah, hello. Uh, I'm calling from Microsoft. Uh, we've detected some issues with your computer. Hello? Hello? Yeah, hello. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I can hear you now, yeah. Yeah, okay, good. Um, yeah, hi, I'm calling from Microsoft, and uh, we've been monitoring yeah. computers in the area because there's been a lot of uh, attacks and viruses uh, that have been going on in the greater Phoenix area. And we're well, okay, to... let me tell you something. There is people who they try to hack, but we have protection. Then I don't know. You have to ask someone else, not me. me I, my, my computers, they are really protected, and I have no problem about it. Oh, no, no, but we have detected there's a problem with your computer. No, it's no problem at all. You can you can tell me that, but I can, I can see right now there is a two-pronged attack into your computer at the moment that's going to wipe out your data unless we can take care of it. Sorry? What you Th- say? There's a two-pronged attack right now that uh, is a very sophisticated attack that's being – it's using a, a flaw in Windows 8 that is uh, okay. that is going to bring down your whole system if we don't take care of it. I don't take care of it. Don't worry. I have no problem. Thank you. Bye-bye. No, you have a problem, sir. I'm trying to warn you, sir. Sir, I'm trying to warn you. Are you calling me from the valley now? Oh, come on. Come on what? I'm trying to help you. Sir. Hello? Okay, see? Hello? Okay, he hung up on me. See, he's wise to these prank calls. That's That's why it's so hard to prank this place. That was Sammy, the Israeli owner there. I like how he didn't just hang up on me, though. He tells me he has all the protection he needs. JSTAT saying Microsoft wouldn't call during business hours. Not believable. Or would call during business hours. Okay, good point. By the way, I used the two-pronged attack thing from the actual scam call I got where they claimed that a two-pronged attack was coming against my computer. Okay. <laughs> right, let's, let's, try, let's try to call back one more time. We put all this effort in. Let's let's get oh, through one more time. They'll probably hang up right away. He may not even answer, but. Yeah, um, uh, uh, Yeah. somehow our call got disconnected. Uh, you know, I can't help you if you don't want to be helped. 
You, you have no, to be willing Dan, to be helped. I don't helped. need your help, my friend. I don't need Go yes. ask Gordon Ramsay. I think he needs your help. Not no, me. no, not, not Gordon Ramsay. I have nothing to do with no, Gordon Ramsay. No, ask Gordon Ramsay. I'm working. Come on. I'm, I'm come working. On, I'm, come on. Come this on. This has nothing to do with you Gordon. You know who you're talking to. You don't know who you're talking to. Who huh? am I talking to? You think to? I'm a fucker? Fuck you. Oh. <laughs> Jeez, look at that. That was a good one. Okay, now now I'm kind of happy I put the effort into this. <laughs> so he knew I was calling because I was someone who'd seen him on Gordon Ramsay. That's what he's referring to. But the, Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who you're talking to? Fuck you! <laughs> Beautiful. Better than I expected, actually. Short but sweet. All right, let's move on. Maybe we'll call in a subsequent week when he's not... Uh, if I call back, you know, he'll know it's me again. So we'll just get more of the same. Maybe next week we'll do something different. All right, so... Let's talk about Gus Hansen and Victor Blum. Amaya Gaming, who owns Poker Stars in Full Tilt, has been making changes. They've been doing a lot of different things to change both the product and the marketing for both Poker Stars in Full Tilt. Last week we talked about their uh, what is it? Spin and goes. Yeah, the spin and go tournaments, which introduced a gambling element to sit and goes beyond what regular poker has as far as gambling, like actually a gambling regarding what kind of payout you're going to get. And uh, we've talked before how they've been releasing pros like it's going out of style. They're just dropping pros left and right. They wouldn't even re-sign Joe Cada for rakeback only. They told him, forget it. F you. And Joe Cada was none too happy about that. But now they have dropped the two biggest names that they have dropped so far. They have dropped two pretty big names in poker and two people in poker who are European and who you think would appeal to the European market that they are trying to attract because they're no longer in the U.S. You can understand why they are dropping pros like Joe Cada, who are U.S. players and wouldn't necessarily drum up a lot of new business outside the U.S., but... Gus Hansen and Victor Blom are both European, and they're both very well-known players. But they are no longer full-tilt sponsored pros. This just happened. So what happened? Why are Victor Blom and Joe Cada gone from full-tilt poker as, as sponsored pros? Well, they have a really weird explanation at Amaya about this. First of all, they've already gotten rid of Blom and Hansen from the homepage. In fact, that's what was first noticed. Before it was officially announced, uh, people were noticing they were just gone from the homepage, which was a sign that something had changed. And Full Tilt did confirm that the sponsorship deals of both players have expired and are not going to be renewed. Uh, Amaya said that this termination of these two 
follows a year-long review of the Full Tilt brand and a decision to move away from pro-centric advertising to focus on the experiences and stories of the vast majority of our, vast majority of our players. What? Listen to that again. A decision to move away from pro-centric advertising to focus on the experiences and stories of the vast majority of our players. So what would be the experiences and stories of the vast majority of their players? Uh, I was playing on full till, and I, I was playing 1-2-0 no limit, and I got pocket aces, and this guy raised, and, and I went all in for... Uh, for $200, and he called, and he had Queen-9 offsuit. And I'm like, what the hell? 200 for Queen-9 offsuit? And then what do you know? The flop has a queen, and the river has a nine, and he stacks me. Man, that sucked. I mean, that's pretty much what the experiences and stories of the vast majority of players would be. Bad beat stories, low-limit poker, maybe accusations that it's rigged. I mean... What does that even mean, focus on the experiences and stories of the vast majority of our players? I just think this is a weird statement they made when the truth is they realize that these sponsored pros are costing way more money than they are worth. And if they were to pay them what they'd be worth, they'd be paying them almost nothing, and they would never want to work for that. So for that reason, they just get rid of them. And I think when they say they're going to focus on the experiences and stories of the vast majority of players, they're trying to say... We're just going to keep the money and we're just going to try to advertise in a way that appeals to the average Joe. Like Advertise to make the average Joe feel like we're talking to him. So rather than come to full tilt and admire all these guys who are much better than you and play way, way bigger than you'll ever play, it'll be come to full tilt and play where we care about you, the low-limit player. I bet it'll be something like that. Now, in December... Of course, that's now 10 months ago. They dumped Durr, Tom Dwan. So all three of these guys are now gone. And they originally put these three into Full Tilt in 2012 when Full Tilt returned to the online poker market after PokerStars bought them. But of course, now they have different owners and the different owners you can tell from all the different pros they fired that they just do not like having to pay pros to promote the product and I think they're right I think they're right I think a few high profile pros that are directly associated with a brand can be beneficial like Negranu is to poker stars but I think just having pros on the roster who don't do very much to promote the room and are kind of just there. They kind of just play high stakes and they wear the patch, but that's it. Like that's, that's not good enough. So you either need someone who's both charismatic and willing to go out of his way to promote the brand, or they just should not be representing your brand. Ultimate poker. They signed some pros at the beginning and they were pretty much the first things cut when the company was struggling.
the statement from Full Tilt also talked about how they're going to increase their focus on games besides poker. They said, Full Tilt will celebrate the excitement, fun, and intrinsic enjoyment of playing our poker, blackjack, roulette, and slots games. And uh, they did like to finish off, they did finish off with, we would like to wish Victor and Gus all the best in their future endeavors. Isn't that nice? Isn't that sweet? But yeah, apparently their marketing is going to go away from marketing pros. They do not like the model used by original Full Tilt of play and chat with the pros. They don't like that. They do not want this to be about the pros anymore. I always kind of laughed at that whole form of marketing. Because I know when I looked for a poker site to play, I wanted to be at the poker sites with the fewest number of pros. I wanted to play against as many amateurs as possible because I enjoy winning money in poker. And you'd think a site that is full of pros is not necessarily a good thing for the average player. Now, I know a lot of recreational players, they just want to say, hey, I played with such and such guy. Hey, I played with, with uh, Gus Hansen. Hey, I played with Phil Ivey. And if these players spend a certain amount of time in the lower stakes games, I guess that can be a thrill. And I know people like watching the high stake games running. I even experienced that myself playing like 40-80 and 100-200 in absolute poker. I used to have like fans who didn't even know who I was. Like they weren't fans of me, Todd Wittellis, or Dan Druff. They were fans of my alias on absolute poker that I didn't associate with, with my real name. But because I played there all the time and I was a winner on that site and I played the highest games that ran there, I actually had fans that would sit there all day and watch me. And when I'd show up and say, hey, I was wondering when you'd come. I, I, I couldn't wait for you to show up. I was like, this is so weird. Why does anyone want to watch me play online poker? But there were people who did. And I was just like, you know, I, an alias on absolute poker. So a well-known poker pro, you got to think, yeah, they're going to get people like that too. Here's some texts I got from the 703 area code. Who's your favorite painter? Huh? I think I'll have to go with Jameson Painter. He's the only painter I know. From the 205 area code, Raw Wolf is awesome. I have a feeling that came from Raw Wolf himself. Okay, let's uh, move on to the next topic. Let's talk about something going on here right at home at Poker Fraud Alert. That is one of our users brought forth a scam that took place against one of his friends and something this player personally got involved in to try to collect on behalf of his friend. Uh, This user has been around on the site on Poker Fraud Alert since May of 2012. He is a listener to this show. And he lives in the New Jersey area. I think this guy lives in New York, but goes to Atlantic City frequently. This is what he wrote. New Jersey poker player Douglas Conway, known as Unifro and Fatal Flaws Online, is a scammer. He says, I've been putting a lot of effort collecting a six-month-old debt from Douglas Conway. I'm making this post because I believe he free-rolled a $1,000 bet without intention of paying last April and then proceeded to waste a ridiculous amount of my time and energy. 
He seems to think he can twist the situation and convince me he's actually trying very hard to pay the $1,000, and the fact that he hasn't paid yet is my fault. That's a typical scammer tactic. They love to say, I've been trying to pay, but you're not letting me. I'm trying to pay, but you're making it tough. It's always BS. That was my commentary there, not his. He goes on, I believe he doesn't have the money, and the whole thing is a result of his ego. I have reminded him many times that if the amount was an issue, we could work out some payment plan without interest, no problem. I wouldn't be making this post if he admitted he was broke and would start paying $40 a month or whatever. Here's one example of his reactions when I mentioned him possibly not being able to afford it. He writes, LOL, are you really dumb enough to believe that I don't have 1K or are you just trolling? I tend to think you're trolling. So I've taken this approach before too with people who owe me money. I hate when someone owes me like a four-figure sum of money or a three-figure sum of money. And I say, why haven't you sent me anything? And they say, well, I don't have it yet. I don't have it all. I I have such and such problem or I I haven't been able to make that much money yet. And I say, okay, no problem. Send me $50 every week. What? What? Why should I have to do that? $50 a week? Come on, that's going to take forever. I go, look, I'll be happy to take $50 a week because $50 a week in a year's time is $2,600. So that'll knock out what you owe me pretty quickly. But they don't send $50 a week. Why? Because they just don't want to pay. They can afford $50 a week. Almost anyone can afford $50 a week, but they don't because they don't want to pay. So he goes on to write, The bet was whether Don was whether Doug, Doug Conway, the scammer here, or George Sikak would have a higher total amount won on New Jersey's party poker during an online series last April for $1,000. Only main events they both played counted. Sikak made the bet, and I took some of the action, and he won. So basically, this guy and George Sikak bet against Doug Conway that Sikak was going to have better results in that April tournament series on New Jersey party poker, and and they won against Doug Conway, who owed the two of them $1,000 total. So he says, Doug lives in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, about 60 miles from Atlantic City. Both George and I live over 120 miles away without a car. I, I think they live in uh, New York. So he said, at the end of April, during the last weekend of the series, Doug offered to call off the bet. <laughs> Probably because he was behind. George declined. Doug said he could meet up that Monday at Borgata to f- settle the bet. George wasn't able to make the trip that day and figured they could work out something else later. Uh, Doug later uses this as his first example of proof that he's not broke or a scammer and just George and I are the ones making things difficult. So scammers love to do that. They'll say, I can meet you and pay you on Monday. If you say yes, then they find an excuse of why they can't later on. Like something come up at the last minute and they claim they can't make it or they just won't show. If you say no, then they go, ah, ah, well, see, I was trying to pay you. I was trying. So it's like a free roll offer for them. If you can make it, they find a way not to make it themselves. If you can't, then they claim it's proof they were trying to pay you. So then he says, May and June. Doug disappeared without notice, immediately following the series for about two months. No attempts of communication, no activity on any forums or poker sites. About two months later, around the last week of June, he returned and provided the following explanation after I called him a scammer. Quote, I've been out of the country for the past two months. Before I left, however, I offered to meet at the Borgata... So, again, I already told you this. So I'm not a scammer or whatever else you're implying I am. July. 
George handled communications with Doug while in Vegas for the World Series of Poker, requested the money he sent via PayPal or bank transfer. It didn't happen. Not much effort was put into either collecting or paying the debt. August. I became more and more involved, and George was ready to write it off as a scam and to be done with it. Doug understood I was financially interested, and after confirming this with George, began working with me to figure out a way to get either George or myself the money primarily through PMs on 2 plus 2. I believe he doesn't have the money, so one of the first things I told him and also reminded him of many times is that if the amount was an issue, we could work out some payment plan, no problem. Uh, After many PMs, Doug made it clear that he was going to be making this very difficult. He refused to send the money in any way. No bank deposit, no wire transfer of any sort, no check by mail, no Western Union, nothing. I suggested every option I could think of. He claims it would put him at risk to deposit or send the money to either of us since he wouldn't know whose bank account it really was and would be responsible if we did something illegal. <laughs> so did you guys know that? Did you know that uh, if you owe someone money and you pay them what you owe, if, then they, if they go take the money you paid them, that you owed them, and do something illegal with it, somehow you're responsible. So now, before money ever changes hands again, guys, be careful. Be careful, because if you ever pay anyone or anything or any company and they take the money you pay them and do something illegal with that money, then you, my friend, are going to jail. (laughs) I mean, is that a ludicrous explanation or what? If that's true, you should never pay anyone anything, anytime, anywhere. But you never know what they're going to do with the money after you leave. That's ludicrous. That's preposterous. That's the dumbest excuse I've ever heard about not paying anyone. So, uh, this is what he said. This is what Doug wrote. Doug Conway. Depositing money into an unknown bank account is not my idea of secure, especially considering I have no way of knowing who that account belongs to and what other things that account may be used for. That's not even true because when you go up to an, you go to a bank and say, I want to deposit cash, they will ask you what's the account number and what's the name. And then the bank will verify that that's true. And they do that so they make sure you're not depositing in the wrong account. So yes, you know who it belongs to. Anyway, there are legal implications at play that you obviously do not realize. Yeah, he doesn't realize because he's making them up. Uh, The issue is not the reliability of the transaction or any doubt that you'll receive the funds. I have had friends that have had so many things go wrong with Western Union transactions, on top of which Western Union is known to be a method of sending money for people who do not want to go through usual channels for obvious reasons. I'm just not comfortable using Western Union. I think it's reasonable for me to feel this way. (laughs) Very, very reasonable. How dare you feel it? (laughs) (laughs) How dare you ask for the money Western Union Then he also says I explained to you already Why I'm not comfortable making a deposit to a random bank account And Western Union is also shady Getting to AC is not an issue So anyway A lot of excuses like this Then in September uh, He says uh, he writes, Luckily George George and I would be there for most of the Borgata open in September For about two to three weeks he could show up pretty much any time and one of us would be able to meet up. So this killed Doug's excuse for let's only do it at the Borgata, which he was probably proposing knowing these two guys are 120 miles away and it's going to be too much of a pain in the ass to make the 240-round trip for $1,000. But they're going to be there anyway for most of the month of September. So they go, ah, well, now, now we'll just tell them to come any time and we'll get the money. So, of course, that didn't happen. 
Doug thought it would be unreasonable for him to make it any time during the series because an online series running on party poker was scheduled at the same time. So he's uh, the name of the uh, series, I guess, was a GSSS. So he said, after GSSS, I will be happy to meet to settle. I will continue to try until until it's paid. I can settle as soon as it's possible to meet up to settle. For me, that's after GSSS. So then after the series ended, uh, then he says, GSSS ended yesterday. Seriously, I just spent the last 14 days playing nonstop poker. And FYI, I just did fine. Please give me some time to decompress <laughs> so first he says he can't come because he needs to play online poker at home and then when that series is over now he needs to decompress from online poker I think you're getting the picture as to what's going on there I think you're getting the picture so then finally in October he writes this is when I started threatening to go public and make this post a few days later, he sent me this message. If you do any of that, I will sue you for libel. I will be at Borgata today. If one of you, two, if you two clowns wants to come and meet me, I'll be in high limit. Shouldn't be too hard to find. It's pretty dead during the week. So he didn't get the message until it was too late. So then, of course, uh, Doug gloated about it, saying, oh, you said give me a time and place, and I did. Yet again, you couldn't be there. I guess I'll have to try again. I won't be there tomorrow. So then he goes on about being called out, about more threats about that. If you do that, not only will I not pay you, but I assure you by the end of it all, you'll be paying me a significant amount of money in damages. This is not a silly threat. If it's one thing I'm not short of, it's attorneys who like to file, quote, silly lawsuits. I'll let you know next time I'm going to be in AC. That's the best I can do. So he's saying, you better you better not make this public that I'm a scammer, or number one, I'm going to punish you by not paying you, and number two, I have a lot of attorneys that will file lawsuits for me. I have access to lots of attorneys, so you better watch out, buddy. Pretty bad. Scammers love to make legal threats, too. They love to say that. If you dare make this public, if you dare tell anyone, I'm going to sue you and take everything you have. He says, you do that and you'll regret it big time. I promise you that. If you make any such post saying I'm a scammer or do anything to that effect, I will not pay. Otherwise, I will continue to try to pay. So the scammers love secrets. They love to make you be quiet and shut up so others don't know about what you're pulling on them. So the word doesn't get out about you. So you can't scam other people. They don't want that. So he says, look, just give me 48 hours notice and and I'll be there. And, And then Doug writes back, 48 hours in advance, LMAO. I don't even know where I'll be or what I'll be doing 48 hours in advance if I don't know how the hell am I supposed to tell you? So he's saying 48 hours isn't enough. Uh, you got to give me more notice than that. So excuse after excuse after excuse. Anyway, um, I offered to be a middleman for this whole thing, saying, look, I've never scammed anyone. I, you know, I've been in poker for 14 years now and never once has there ever been an accusation against me of any kind of scamming or financial impropriety. So let me be the middleman here. Just send it to me, and I will make sure the right guys get it. And I'm sure they'll agree. So Fatal Flaws actually showed up on the site and first declined this, saying that he only wants to deal with the people who are directly involved with him. He doesn't want third parties there. But he also uh, insisted that he was correct that depositing money in accounts 
in other people's bank accounts puts you liable, which is not true. Now, it's only true, you can only be liable for putting money in a bank account of somebody else if it's very clear that you are putting that money in to support a criminal activity. But there has to be further evidence. It can't just be you put money in there. So, for example, uh, if the feds found messages between me and you where I'm saying, hey, go buy $10,000 worth of drugs. I'm going to put ten k in your account tomorrow. Withdraw it and go buy drugs with it. Go buy cocaine with it. Well, then they could charge me because... I was part of the conspiracy to buy the cocaine. I put the money in and told you to buy cocaine with it. Or even if you asked me, hey, I need to buy some cocaine. Can you give me $10,000 for it? Again, then I could be in some trouble. But not if I owed you $10,000 and then you took the money I owed you and bought cocaine with it. Even if you bought the cocaine and dealt the cocaine, as long as I could show that I really did owe you the money and I didn't put it in there for the purpose of buying cocaine, then I am in the clear. So he's just being ridiculous here. Otherwise, anybody who ever pays anyone for anything could be liable, according to him. And furthermore, if you're that paranoid about it, you shouldn't be making bets with people. If it's so hard to pay you, and the only way you can possibly uh, pay the guy is to meet him in person, and if it's hard for you to do that, then you should say, hey, it's going to be very difficult for me to pay you if uh, you end up winning. And if you don't disclose that up front, then it's your fault. But the truth is, he's just making excuses, and obviously everyone knows that. So uh, he went back and forth with me and others on the site a few times. He came off terribly. Uh, the, the final thing he said is, as I said, I'm happy, more than happy to resolve this with the actual person I made the bet with, uh, not Dupe Samaritan, who, by the way, you know, had a piece of the action. I am done dealing with anyone else in this matter. They have my contact info. I can prove I was at Borgata last night via my comp card. What do you care whether a prop bed is paid off or not? I fail to see the connection. Regardless, this will be the last post I make here. I, I skipped one thing where uh, Dupe Samaritan drove all the way down there, 120 miles to meet him, and he didn't show up. And then he claimed that uh, he can prove he was there because he used his card and, and played a little bit there, and his comp card shows that he played. <laughs> well, I mean, that doesn't mean that he was looking for Dupe Samaritan or showing up where they agree. That just means he showed up at Borgata, uh, stuck it in a slot machine, played a tiny bit, and left. So Dupe Samaritan sat there like a chump waiting for him, and he never showed up. So anyway. It's pretty clear this guy's not going to pay. And Dupe Samaritan did the right thing by showing up here and making this whole situation public. So now everyone sees the truth. Now everyone knows the truth. Now you Google Douglas Conway, which is probably a fairly common name. Let me try. Douglas Conway Poker. Let's see what comes up. Ah! Second result, Poker Fraud Alert. NJ poker player Douglas Conway is a scammer. All right, good. Second result for Douglas Conway poker. Let's just try Douglas Conway. Now, there's a lot of other Douglas Conway, so it doesn't come up there. But if you do Douglas Conway poker, that's the second thing that comes up. That's what this site's for. 
And look, he showed up and responded. I always give people a chance to respond. I always give people a chance to clear their names. But he didn't clear his name. He just regurgitated the same BS he'd been telling Dupe Samaritan, which is obviously someone who does not want to pay his debts. Now, you may say, what if Douglas Conway is broke? What can he do? He can't just invent $1,000 that doesn't exist. But again, Dupe Samaritan and uh, his friend George, who the money's also owed to, they are willing to accept a payment plan of $40 a week. 40 freaking dollars a week. Less than $6 a day. You can't even buy a fast food meal for $6 a day, usually. Less than $6 a day he's asking for to pay off this $1,000 debt, and Douglas still won't do that. So this guy's a scumbag scammer. F him. I feel confident saying that from everything we're seeing. All right, let's talk about Phil Hellmuth and Wife Swap. Uh, the show Wife Swap. Let's see if I can find a little promo of this online so you can get a little preview of what this is. It's been around for a little time, but I've never watched it. Hmm. Here's some full episodes online. I don't want that. I just want like a preview. That's not the right thing. Hang on here. This says Wife Swap starring Crazy Redneck Americans. All right, let's see him. Let's see the Crazy Redneck Americans. No idea what we're going to see here. All food diet ban, Kim's ruled the Haygood kids visit a restaurant and choose whatever meal they want. What looks good to you? The chicken strips or the roast beef? I think I'm just going to go with a hamburger. Wow. Do you need barbecue sauce or ranch or anything? Just ketchup? Yeah. Dig in. It tasted like really good, but then once it started going down, it just didn't quite settle with my stomach. It was muddy one day. Uh, The most difficult part is the knowing, knowing what may happen afterwards. In Iowa, it's the morning after the Haygood's first cooked meal in over a year, and all is not well. I feel really not good. Oh, uh, you don't feel good? No. Do you feel sick? Yeah, I was a food last night. Oh, really? Yeah. I knew that that food was not good for us. Our bodies were like, get this stuff out of our system. I didn't really sleep very well last night, and my stomach hurt. But then this morning, I just haven't had very much energy i'm not feeling very well at all right now i i feel like somebody's just kicked the wind out of me but my kids are suffering right now <laughs> it's my kids in pain i know everyone does this is what will happen if they go off of our diet i just feel really terrible right now. i'm doing this to my children <laughs> they're such troopers <laughs> and i want to do the rules but i don't want to do it at their death <laughs> This is a weird clip here from uh, the show. Uh, I've never seen it, but from what I can deduce from this, uh, this was a wife swap episode where a black woman who is probably part of a black family was 
swapped into this home with a family, some kind of weird diet. And I, I guess they don't ever eat cooked food. So they went out and had some kind of fried food, which I guess is the, a pretty big shock to your system if you've never had cooked food before. And so everybody started feeling sick. And then this guy started crying that, uh, you know, he's supposed to follow the rules and do what the wife, the new wife in the house says to do. But uh, he doesn't want to do it at the expense of his children's death. <laughs> so they always get strange people for this. They try to, they don't want to just swap two ordinary couples. It's not very interesting. They want to get really weird couples and then swap the wives. So you watch two wives from totally different situations end up in the other's home and, and are told to kind of take over, and then you watch the hilarity ensue. So uh, this woman was brought over into this weird home where the nobody can ever have cooked food. So they wanted to do something like this with Phil Hellmuth. And uh, they offered it to him. Well, Phil Hellmuth tweeted the following. Have an offer to be on ABC television show, uh, ABC television show Wife Swap, but wife won't do it. Though I'm sure she would look amazing. Hashtag wife is awesome. So he just tweeted that on October 15th. And um, apparently his wife doesn't want to do it. So he wants to, his wife doesn't, and it's not going to happen. I don't know if I've ever even seen Phil Helmuth's wife. Her name is Catherine. Let me try to Google Catherine Helmuth. She definitely stays out of the spotlight, I'll say that. Um... I see a Catherine Helmuth, but I don't know if that's the same one. I don't know. Maybe someone in the chat can link me to his wife. So, um... Lou Father just found a picture of her. Send me the link. Lou Father is not impressed with how she looks, though, honestly, she's probably around 50 years old. So it's not all that fair to judge her from, like, is she a hot chick standpoint? Because, you know, Phil has been with her over 20 years. And when you marry young, your wife may be attractive at the time, but you don't know what the next 20-something years are going to bring. Some women age really well. And still look very good in their 40s. And other ones don't. And sometimes it's hard to predict, honestly. And you can't just say, okay, well, I'm, I'm leaving my wife of 20 years because she got ugly. Because she didn't age well. You're just kind of stuck at that point, to be honest. So. Jay Stats saying that Helmuth's wife probably works at Stanford Hospital. Hmm. It's possible. I mean, they live in Palo Alto, so that makes sense. Okay, someone, uh, Lou Father just sent, oh, so it is the same woman, okay. Yeah, I saw a picture, I saw that picture, I just wasn't sure if it was her. So, I mean, she looks okay. 
She's not like really hot or anything, but she, she looks okay. She looks like she's around his age, late 40s. Looks like she might be a little bit too skinny in this picture, but maybe she's a bad picture of her. Yeah, I, I see another picture of them. She's holding a pocket aces. I mean, she just she just looks like a woman in her late 40s, honestly. That's it. She just looks like a typical average woman in her late 40s. I, I'm not going to say she's ugly. I'm not going to say she's hot or looks looks young for her age. She doesn't. She she just looks like an average woman in her late 40s, to be honest. But, yeah, look at Phil Hellmuth. Phil Hellmuth, he's rich. He, he's well-known, but he's it's not like he's a great-looking guy himself. Uh, someone in chat is PMing me. Helmut's wife is a psych. I don't think he means psycho. I think he means psychiatrist. She probably needs one to deal with him. <laughs> oh, apparently that's not really her. That's some actress. That's what I thought. See, I, I shouldn't trust the damn chat room. The, the chat room usually leads me in the right direction, or sometimes they lead me astray. Um, I I don't know. And maybe that is her. I don't know what to say. She's okay. So, um, yeah, Phil is not going to be on Wife Swap. Now, what about my potential appearance on reality TV? By the way, I just got some uh, messages, some text messages. 951 area code from J.A. Acosta. It says, J.A. Acosta is God. Fuck Phil Ivey. And uh, 815 area code. Fucking scammers, the three lowest forms of life on earth are poker scammers, car salesmen, and lawyers. I'm pretty sure this Doug guy sells used cars to lawyers while scamming poker players. Oh, and I never got my hat. Uh Uh-oh. I'm not sure who you are, 815 area code. You should tell me who you are, but all the hats have been mailed out. Maybe you got lost if I sent one to you. So what reality show did I almost appear on? And how did I almost appear there? And why didn't I appear there? Well, I learned something about casting for game shows and reality shows. I learned something about 15 years ago with that. And that is, there's kind of a list in most cases. There's a list they have that various agents, talent agencies have of people they've dealt with in the past from open casting calls that they liked that they thought were notable in some way and then they keep this list and they categorize these people you know uh, they'll do it based upon what they look like what they act like and it, it could be very you know uh, blatant stereotypical things you know fat sassy black woman uh, geeky middle aged white guy you know whatever they, they list of, of for each category who they've seen before notes about these people and then they go through that so when they uh, 
are hired to cast these shows and they need a certain type of person. They look at what they've seen before and then they draw from that. They don't usually hold these gigantic open casting calls. Sometimes they do, but a lot of times they don't. So I was on this list because Ken Scaler dragged me down to some of these game show auditions. And I actually was accepted to be on the uh, revival of uh, Press Your Luck. But the revival got canceled before my episode came up. So they, I never even went down there. I mean, I went down there for the tryout, but uh, never got on the show, even though I was supposed to be on the show, as was Ken, but it got canceled too early. But after that, they had both me and Ken in their system as people they liked, as people they thought were interesting. So they were calling us separately you know, for, for different projects that would come up that they thought uh, we would be good for. I never actually appeared in any of them for various reasons. But uh, I think the most notable one was a show that I later determined was Married by America that aired in the beginning of 2003. And um, basically five single people agree to be paired up sight unseen with strangers chosen by the audience. And then the five new couples who had never met each other before or spoken to each other before get engaged on the spot. And then they are sequestered at a ranch for an engagement period. And um, they see if these couples actually succeed. And they get eliminated one by one if they're not succeeding. And then uh, at the end, uh, uh, the the final two couples left decide if they really want to get married. And I I don't know if there's some prizes at the end or what. But anyway, they called me up, the same casting agency called me up and asked me if I wanted to be on a show, a dating-related show, but it was one not really about casual dating, but one for people who really are ready to settle down. And they gave me enough information about the show that I was later able to deduce it was Married by America, or what would become Married by America. It wasn't even titled yet by that point. Interestingly enough, a year after the show got canceled, and the show did not do well, and by the way, nobody on the show ended up getting married, but uh, uh, there was... A scene with strippers and uh, one of the strippers licking whipped cream off of a man's nipple during a bachelor party. Well, the FCC fined them $1.2 million for that scene, saying it violated the decency laws of broadcast television. $1 million. Yeah, no, it was more than that, $1.2 million. So I, I pretty much had a direct passed to appear on the show. It wasn't like, come down and we'll try you out for it. They said, come down and you will be on it. But I said no, for two reasons. Number one, I already had an existing long-term relationship. And number two, I'm not going to do that type of thing on national TV. I'm not going to go on there and, you know, and I'm not going to have a television marriage with a stranger. 
I'm not opposed to being on a reality show or a TV show or something like that. I would not want to go on there to marry a stranger or some gimmick like that. I, I, I don't think, you know, romantic relationships are a laughing matter. So, and I, I knew they would also be trying to exploit me in some way, and I, I didn't want to do it. I don't know if there are prizes involved. It's possible maybe if you make it at the end, you get a million dollars. So I, I guess in that way, it's not a bad gamble. But they didn't tell me about any prizes. Maybe they told me a million dollars at the end. <laughs> maybe I would have uh, gone on and faked it. I don't know. I mean, the whole thing's fake anyway. The whole thing's contrived anyway, so I wouldn't feel guilty. But uh, I ended up not going on, and that was the show. And it was it was kind of a fail show. In fact, it was a fail show. But yeah, I, I could have been part of the five couples appearing on Married by America. Okay, Bobby Orr clearing up the Phil Helmu thing. The, the thing I saw, the first picture I saw was his wife. So yeah, she looks like, uh, she looks very skinny in this picture. Just kind of looks like an older, you know, late 40s woman. So let's talk about New Jersey and sports betting. New Jersey has been attempting to get sports betting in the state. Right now you can only sports bet legally in Nevada as far as legal U.S. sports betting. But New Jersey actually has plans to introduce real money sports betting as soon as this weekend... That's right. As soon as this weekend, uh, what happened was a bill was passed called S-2460, which is a limited repeal of the state's ban on sports betting. And it would, it would allow the sports betting to occur at certain gambling venues, meaning racetracks and casinos, that uh, are already licensed for other gambling. A sh- judge named Michael J. Ship was the one who ruled against the states uh, against the state uh, in its effort to overturn a federal level uh, law called the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, which bans all forms of sports betting in the U.S. except for Nevada. So Judge Ship already said to New Jersey, no, you can't get gambling here, too. It's still only going to be Nevada, but... Uh, This uh, S-2460 repeals the state's ban, and uh, they're going to try to go ahead with it. So the same judge, Judge Ship, has told the state and the casinos that want to order sports betting to respond to a temporary restraining order that was requested against them allowing it. Now, who is filing that restraining order? That restraining order is coming from the NCAA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, National Hockey League, and the NBA. So the five biggest sports leagues in the United States, four professional, one amateur, have filed a motion with that same judge, Judge Ship, for a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction to prevent them from 
allowing the sports wagering, which is slated to start occurring at Monmouth Park Racetrack this Sunday. So it's not clear whether this uh, is going to actually stop them. And um, the state and the casinos that want to offer the sports betting, uh, they have until next uh, until uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, to respond to the league's fi- filing, which they just did on Monday. So they don't have very much time to respond. They have uh, two days from the 20th to the 22nd of October. So this is what is being said by these five leagues. Uh, It says, The plaintiffs are likely to prevail in arguing that the 2014 sports wagering law, the latest iteration of the New New Jersey law, violates the the federal law, which is the uh, Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, the PASPA. And that, or that the law violates the New Jersey Constitution and that the planned wagering at the Monmouth Park would then violate the PASPA. Plaintiffs, referring to the sports leagues, would be irreparably harmed in the event sports betting is allowed in New Jersey racetracks or casinos. Somehow, uh, somehow they're going to be irreparably harmed by sports betting in New Jersey, even though it goes on every day in Nevada. <laughs> it's going to cause irreparable harm somehow. I mean, that's pretty stupid. They went on to say... Uh, the balance of equity suggests that any possible harm done to the defendants, uh, meaning the state and the casinos, is outweighed by the possible harm done to the pro leagues and the NCAA, and thus judgeship should favor the leagues and issue the injunction. I, I don't understand this. I, I don't understand why they're trying so hard to stop this when there's already so much sports betting in Nevada. Yes, it'll expand sports betting, but the the cat's already out of the bag. The genie's out of the bottle. The horse is out of the barn. Insert another cliche here. There's already sports betting. There's sports betting in Nevada. There's sports betting in illegal online sports betting sites. There's sports betting on legal online sports betting sites for the rest of the world. Allowing Atlantic City in on the action is not going to change that. So this is really just going to be a small piece, I think, of of all the sports bets placed. It's not going to change anything. It's not like now games are going to be fixed, whereas before they wouldn't have been. Any corruption that might be occurring to these sports through sports betting has already occurred and is occurring every day with the existing legalized sports betting. I just can't understand why it should be illegal in New Jersey, but yet legal in Nevada. They're both states within the United States of America. They've both been offering gambling for a long time. Does not make sense to me. I don't know why the leagues are trying so hard to stop this. I would understand if they were trying to stop all sports betting but just one state of sports betting when a bigger market of sports betting, the Nevada market, 
already exists and will continue to exist is kind of pointless. But that's what they're doing. So we'll see. Maybe there will be sports betting on Sunday. Maybe there won't. But New Jersey is trying. I'll give them that. All right. Let's talk about breakout gaming. Breakout gaming. What is that? We've talked about it before on this show, and it's really weird. It's the best description of it. It's just weird. And... What's so strange about it is it's it's supposed to be an online gambling site, an online gambling company. Uh, they've already involved a number of well-known poker pros, some of whom are kind of has-beens, and it kind of reminds me of the forming of the Full Tilt team. Some of them are former Full Tilt people, some of them aren't. So we have Todd Brunson, Johnny Chan, Ted Forrest, David Benjamin, Jeff Lissandro, Huck Seed, even Lane Flack, Russ Hamilton's buddy. Uh, Jennifer Harmon, don't forget her. So, this is a site that is going to have its own currency called Breakout Coins. Now, as you probably know, there are Bitcoin poker sites out there and Bitcoin gambling sites out there. This would both be a poker and a gambling site, but there are places you can gamble bitcoins, and your currency on these sites are bitcoins. So when you load money or bitcoin onto these sites, not really money, but you load bitcoin onto these gambling sites, if bitcoin goes up or down while your money is on there, or your, your bitcoin are on there, then your bitcoin value goes with it. So it's actually possible on these sites to win and yet still lose overall if the Bitcoin value falls. For example, let's say Bitcoin was worth $400 yesterday. And then today, you win so much money on there that you've increased your bankroll on there by 50%. So let's say you had one Bitcoin worth on there. Now you've upped it to 1.5 through gambling winnings on these sites. But if at the same time, Bitcoin crashes down to 200 well, now you still have less value overall You know, when you translate it to U.S. dollars than you did earlier. You actually lose despite the fact that you won. And the reverse can occur. You could actually lose gambling and end up winning if the Bitcoin go up. So for that reason, gambling on these Bitcoin sites can be frustrating because you're not just gambling with whatever game you're playing. You're not just gambling with a poker or the blackjack or whatever you're playing. You're also gambling with the current value of Bitcoin. So this has been a criticism of existing Bitcoin gambling sites that you're speculating on the value of Bitcoin by definition by playing on these sites. But breakout coin, you know, the breakout coin, but breakout uh, gaming seems to be trying to stop this. They're trying to have an alternative currency that does not suffer from this problem by seemingly tying the value of breakout coins to Bitcoin and then keeping it more stable to where fluctuation in Bitcoin value will not mean breakout coins fluctuate. 
So it's not completely clear what they're doing, but they're creating their own cryptocurrency that you use on that site that you can buy with Bitcoin. And even stranger, they have an initial coin offering where you can buy breakout coins before their site is even up. And I think what they're trying to do here is emulate Bitcoin in that, uh, you know, if you buy the initial offering, then if it goes up in price, then you've made money right there. So I guess it actually isn't that stable. But that's what they claim, you know, they claim they have 10 billion or whatever breakout coin that they're going to offer them at a certain amount of money. They're going to sell, I think, like 4.5 million breakout coin initially. And then from there, see where the value goes. So they're trying to get people excited to buy these breakout coins before you can even use them on the site. Because a breakout coin will be worthless outside of breakout gaming. So the whole thing seemed like it's going to be kind of a failure. It seems like a concept that they think is cool, but no one's going to want to do. There's various reasons I think it's going to fail. Number one, there's already too many Bitcoin gambling sites. The market's already saturated with uh, cryptocurrency gambling sites. It's just There aren't enough people wanting to do this to support how many sites there already are. Number two, the whole breakout coin concept is too weird and complicated, and most people will probably avoid it, not even understanding it. They'll just say, this is too weird, I, I didn't want to get involved. Number three, uh, they're excluding U.S. players. Somehow this site, uh, they're canceling out the one market that might be interested uh, because it's considered illegal in the U.S. to do any kind of real money gambling. So they're taking the safe approach and not letting U.S. players play. So without U.S. players, somehow this weird cryptocurrency site is going to thrive in their opinion. (laughs) Yeah. Number four, uh, they seem to have no clue what they're doing. They've made a, a number of social media gaffes. Uh, for example, they, uh, they filled up their Twitter account with bot followers and, and thought no one was going to catch that, and same with Facebook. And they're already off to a bad start in the social media realm, and they don't seem to know what they're doing. Uh, and they seem to be kind of trying to recreate the original full tilt by hiring a bunch of pros, but you see how that model's been working out. So... Uh, that's all kind of old news. I, I first reported this back in uh, September, about a month ago. Well, David Gzesh, David Gzesh is the former CEO of True Poker. He doesn't like to admit that's what he is, but, but he is, or he was. David Gzesh either owned True Poker or owned a large piece of it, but he was definitely the main guy at True Poker back in 2001. I dealt with him personally back then. I was one of the higher limit players on there. A higher limit at the time was 1020 limit, but still. Uh, I was uh, an active high limit player on that site. I dealt with him personally. Uh, He was definitely the one in charge of True Poker. He is now involved in breakout gaming. So, it's interesting because uh, there's a, he's actually showed up on 2 Plus 2 and is discussing Breakout Gaming and his role there and what he's been doing and why he thinks it's going to succeed. He's giving us the best view into what is Breakout Gaming that we've seen so far. 
He posts as Gzesh, G-Z-E-S-H. He lives in Las Vegas. Uh, his name most recently came up with Michael Borovitz. Michael Borovitz happened to try to scam him at the new uh, at the Las Vegas McCarran Airport, and that's how the whole story came out about that. But that's not related to this; just the same guy involved. But to be clear, he was the scam, attempted scam victim. He wasn't trying to scam anyone. Uh, what I will say about David Gazesh before I read this is that he definitely is not someone who can be seen as an online poker visionary who understands the market. Here he created with True Poker something that had a lot of good points to it. The graphics were excellent, even by today's standards. In 2001, the graphics were excellent. In 2014, they'd still be excellent. Uh, It was an interesting site. It was an interesting concept. Uh, It really did kind of make you feel like you were at a real-life poker table. It was kind of emulating the live poker experience. Uh, with animations, a lot of other cool stuff through online poker. But it did not end up doing that well because he refused to allow multi-tabling. The gameplay was too slow. He wouldn't do anything to speed it up. He was obsessed with the, with keeping it as much like the live poker experience as possible. And people don't play online poker to have it be like live poker. There's a lot of things about online poker that you're happy are not like live poker in that it's not slow in that you can multi-table, you can get a lot of hands in. All of these things are advantages of online poker, and yet he didn't want to provide them with his obsession with remaining true, and that's why he called it true poker, seriously, true to the live poker experience. So that obsession cost true poker the ability to rise and become one of the top sites. This was in early to mid-2001 when there was no clear leader in online poker yet. In fact, for a brief moment, True Poker was the number two site in online poker behind Paradise Poker, who also blew it later on. But Party Poker was just getting started. There was no Poker Stars yet. True Poker could have been one of the titans of online poker. Instead, it it became a has-been very quickly because people were not interested in grinding on that site. The gimmick of it, uh, of the animations and all that other stuff was not enough to offset the frustration with the slow gameplay and the inability to multi-table. So this is not the best guy to be hiring, I think, to consult with your new poker site in making it a success. So this is what uh, Zesh wrote. I am consulting on the breakout gaming project specifically and working with other folks looking to bring crypto gaming to the regulated legal gaming markets, including both Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Uh, now, he goes on to talk about the coin sale, the initial coin offering. This is a breakout coins. He says, this will be an offer of coins for sale deliverable upon the launch. This sort of coin sale project is sometimes successful, sometimes not so much. The BRO, that means breakout, Coin sale is intended to sell 4.5 million BRO coins allocated among buyers. One of the effects will be to establish a market price for BRO going forward. Another sale function is clearly to monetize the production of those coins and convert their value into another asset form. If you wonder why is Bitcoin the way to buy other cryptocurrencies, the answer is pretty simple. Coin sales tap into the Bitcoin technology to facilitate the sale of BRO. Overstock, Expedia, etc. sell things for Bitcoin. So what he's trying to say here is we're going to be actually establishing a real value for these coins. 
So it's not like when you buy online poker money and all you're doing is buying money that's uh, you know representative of uh, you know that's, that's being used to play on that site. Here he claims you're actually buying a breakout coin, which is like an asset, which you can use on their site or you can sell later or whatever. So unlike online poker money, like Full Tilt, when you deposited on Full Tilt and you had $2,000 you bought in there, Full Tilt was supposed to be holding that $2,000 for you to come back and get it later, provided you still have it, you know, provided you didn't lose it. So they're saying that this is not what breakout gaming is doing. They're actually selling it to you and saying that now you own this breakout coin and the money that you've spent on it is now theirs. Can you believe this? So you're not just uh, buying the ability to play on their site. You're actually buying an asset of a breakout coin, which now you own. You don't own a piece of the company, but you own the breakout coin. And now the money you spent on the breakout coin, uh, now because they've sold it to you, now they can spend the money the way they please, and they don't have to keep it in any place for you to cash out. (laughs) That's really what he's saying there. It's crazy. A crazy concept. Uh, but that's what he's trying to say. Just like Bitcoin. Like when you buy a Bitcoin from someone, uh, they can do what they want with the money. They're not expected to cash you back out later. If you want to cash out the Bitcoin, then you sell it to someone else. That's Basically what they're doing is they're, they're creating a bunch of these coin, these breakout coin, and saying they, they have a value. We don't know what it is yet, but they have a value. We're creating all these breakout coin. They have a value. And if you want to buy one, then you buy one and then you own it. And then whatever you pay us to buy it, that's our money now. We can do what we want with it. So let me go on to read what, uh, what he was saying here. Because it, it gets more ridiculous from there. You think this is ridiculous, it gets even dumber. Uh, so then, so people were asking, you know, why is he not just using Bitcoin? Is it, why are they introducing this new one? So he said that... Uh, um, Or, you know, why why are you using Bitcoin to buy these coins? I guess you have to buy them with Bitcoin. So he's saying that uh, Bitcoin, it's already established, so it's it's easy to use for it. And then, uh, um, and and that it taps into Bitcoin technology to facilitate the sale of breakout coins. Which, it's kind of a dumb answer, that doesn't really mean anything. Then, Then here's the scary part. This is just what I was discussing. Finally, the coin sale sponsor intends to provide the games venture access to the proceeds funds for marketing of the games project channels as they roll out. My experience in the industry and discussions with gaming marketing channels pretty much confirms that they will want payment and fiat currency, same as spending for office space, staff, gaming license fees, etc. So what he's trying to say here is we need to sell breakout coin. So we have money to pay for the rest of our operations. We have money to pay for marketing. We have money to pay for our staff, for office space, for license fees, whatever. So that's the way we raise our money to operate. By selling you breakout coins, which we just invented ourselves. That's ludicrous. That's absolutely ludicrous. Let's say I invented poker fraud alert coins. And I say, okay, I just invented 10 billion poker fraud alert coins. And I'm going to sell them each for $10. And you're going to want to buy these poker fraud alert coins because what's going to happen is when you buy them, the demand is going to go up and others are going to want to buy them for more than $10. 
So you'll make money if you buy it for $10, and then later on they're going for 12 you can sell them and make 20%. And let's say I sold 10 billion poker fraudler coins at $10 each. Well, guess what? I will have just made $100 billion. I will have in my pocket $100 billion. I really will. And what will you have? You will have absolutely nothing. <laughs> that's how ludicrous this whole thing. I mean, that's what you'd have. You'd have nothing. You'd have 10, you and everybody else who bought would collectively have 10 billion imaginary coins that I made up. And I would have $100 billion. And that's basically what they're doing there on a smaller scale. They're hoping that somehow these breakout coins will develop a value just like Bitcoin did and everything will end up okay. In the meantime, they'll raise money. It's a crazy idea. A crazy idea. I guess if it works, maybe I should try it and then I'll then I will have one hundred billion dollars. Gentlemen, silence. <laughs> so I, I can't believe this guy is getting on 2 plus 2 and actually saying this This is a legitimate idea. So then he talks about the gaming project venture, which is the actual gaming on uh, Breakout Gaming. The gaming project venture, which is not the same as a coin development project, will launch a number of channels for play aside from poker. Offerings for fantasy sports, poker, skill games, esports, casino games, free-to-play games, etc. will be rolled out in markets where the games will be legal, licensed, and regulated, as may be required. Breakout Poker's offering will not be available in the U.S. for traditional gambling. Other versions for free-play tournaments with real prizing and subscription tournament play are being reviewed and considered. The rest of the world poker will be more traditional, licensed, legal, and and regulated gaming. So what they're saying here is that they're going to be creating these breakout coins. They're just going to invent this new cryptocurrency. It's independent of the gaming project on there. It's independent of of what you can do with them on their site. But then you can also use those coins to play on their site. They're just inventing a new cryptocurrency, and they're just going to show up with 10 billion pre-mined coins and say, here they are, and, and they're going to have value. No, they're not. You can say they're going to have value, but they don't. And then they really think they're going to get an audience there. They really think they're going to get an active user base when the U.S. is going to be excluded. Then he answers why they're not seeking venture capital investments instead. He says, The breakout project was selected to make a presentation in Las Vegas recently to a BitAngels investors conference. The presentation followed a panel of, on crowd sales of new cryptocurrencies. Breakout's presentation discussed the coin sale and did not ask for any equity investment in gaming. That, that doesn't say why they didn't. They, they're just saying what they did. It's, uh, the, the real reason is, uh, it really looks like a free roll here to me. What it looks like to me here is that they're inventing these breakout coins that cost them nothing to have. They just say, here we are, here's, uh, here's whatever number of breakout coins we have. And we're selling them now. And when you buy them, you own them. And you can convert them into real money by selling them back to others. So they sell these initial breakout coins. They make a ton of money from it, they're hoping. I think it's going to be a huge failure, but in their dream world, they're going to make a ton of money from people who are excited about it and think they're going to own the new version of Bitcoin. 
they'll raise immediate real cash. You know, they'll sell these for Bitcoin, then sell the Bitcoin for cash, then use the cash to pay for staff and for marketing and everything else. And then, then with all the money they have for marketing and staff and everything else, well, then the site will blow up huge. And then the breakout coins will develop a value because everyone's going to want them and everyone's going to be happy. But it's not going to happen. This is going to be an epic failure. No one's going to want to do this. This seems shady as hell. No one's going to trust that these coins have any kind of real value or ever will. Existing cryptocurrency people are going to say, hey, why should I borrow with this? I'll just stick with Bitcoin, which is well-known and established. People who are not into cryptocurrency are going to think it's weird and aren't even going to understand what they're doing and they're not going to want to bother with it. Uh, The rest of the world gamblers who can play on poker stars in full tilt, why would they even want to bother with this crap when they have a good poker site and good casinos that they can trust, that they can play for real money? U.S. players won't be able to play on there. So who's their market? So I don't know if David Gzesh is just towing the company line because they're paying him as a consultant and he wants to stay on the gravy train, or if he's really talked himself into believing this crap. It's unbelievable that anyone believes this is going to work. There's no chance this is going to work. There is no chance. And I can say there's no chance because there's not even a real target audience for it. No U.S. players. And the foreign players have so many easier and better options to already gamble online without dealing with all this weird breakout coin crap. And no one's going to go for buying these coins, these worthless coins they're inventing, and and believe it's going to be the next great cryptocurrency that's going to make them a fortune. It's a joke. It's a joke. Forum Wars brings up a good point here. He says, Bitcoin is, was at least democratically available to anyone who wanted to go up against the difficulty of mining them. Where was the difficulty for breakout in mining all of them up front by doing no hashing? Exactly. They're just showing up and saying, you know, here's how many, you know, whatever, a billion, 10 billion pre-mined coins. We've mined them ourselves. Here they are. Who wants to buy them? I mean, it really would be the same thing as me just showing up here on uh, Poker Fraudler saying I've got 10 billion Poker Fraudler coins. Who wants them? If I did that and tried to sell Poker Fraudler coins to you guys, you'd laugh, you guys would laugh me off the site. But they actually believe this is going to be a real business venture. It's really going to work. Uh, now, it doesn't seem like a lot of money is invested in this yet. I think they only have a minimal amount of money, maybe six figures, which you know sounds like a lot, but with a bunch of people getting together isn't that much. Uh, And they're hoping that this breakout coin offering is going to give them the cash they need. So here's what's going to happen. The fools they got to invest in this are going to lose their money. Fortunately, it's not going to be huge money, but whoever invested in this stupidly is going to lose their money. Because they're going to have their breakout coin offering. No one's going to go for it. It's going to be an epic failure of all failures. And they're going to shut down. They're going to realize the whole thing didn't work. They'll probably try to reinvest them, reinvent themselves at some point and, and come up with a different way of, of these breakout coins and you know, maybe restructure the company. The whole thing is not going to work. They're basically trying to raise money that they need to operate from this breakout coin sale, which is never going to work. Never.
It'd be like me sitting on the side of the road with a sign saying, I have a great business idea. Give me money for it. Never going to happen. No one's going to go for these breakout coins. No one's going to buy their imaginary currency. There's no excitement about this. There's, uh, I haven't seen anybody on 2 Plus 2 saying, you know what, this looks like a great idea. I'm excited about it. Not, not one person. Not one person is excited about buying breakout coins. Not even one. There's no buzz, no excitement. The only discussion involves people criticizing it and David Kazesh telling them why they're wrong. That's a discussion. But there's no one saying, I can't wait till this shows up or I can't wait to buy my breakout coins. This is going to be the biggest failure and it's going to fall apart and you're never going to hear about it after that. I don't think it's so much a scam, but I, I think it's a little dishonest of what they're doing. They're kind of admitting up front that what they're doing is they're selling imaginary coins to raise money to pay for their operations but they're saying it very indirectly so you kind of miss it they're trying to capitalize on people being excited about what happened with bitcoin people who bought bitcoin for pennies at the beginning who if they held on to them became multimillionaires if they bought a lot of them so they're trying to make people think, oh, I'm going to get on the ground floor of this, and now I'm going to make millions too, for almost nothing. But very few, few people are that stupid. There's a lot of stupid people, in, stupid people in poker. There's a lot of stupid people in Bitcoin. But no one's that stupid. At least I don't think so. Then again, we had those idiots investing in that poker by proxy scam where you send them your Bitcoin and they claim to to be playing poker for you, even though they won't say who they are or where they're playing, and people fell for that one. So maybe they are that stupid. We will see. Well, someone who did something stupid is a UK poker player named Darren Woods. Darren Woods was arrested in the UK and charged with 13 counts of fraud that took place between January 2007 and January 2012. Uh, I don't know when the arrest occurred, but uh, he was just in court recently. That's why this is making the news. Um, The reports on this are not entirely clear, so there may be some incorrect information here. This is reported on by the Grimsby Telegraph in the UK, and it's not exactly the best example of uh, journalistic accuracy. Uh, But basically, it seems like he did this. As Darren Woods created several accounts to use on poker sites and would sometimes sit at the same table with his multiple accounts He did this by buying various forms of internet access and various devices so he could play at the same time and not have the same IP or the same device showing up as uh, being used for these same accounts. So he was basically colluding with himself. 
Uh, apparently, Woods admitted playing online poker games at the same time using other people's names, but denied acting dishonestly or that he had any intention of making a gain, according to the article. Can you believe that? He, he didn't have any bad intentions. They're using several accounts at once in an online poker site. <laughs> So, apparently what really pissed off UK authorities, though, wasn't that. Even though this sounds like the worst part. Uh, what really seemed to piss them off is what he did with the affiliate programs. Because I guess he signed up as an affiliate, which is a middleman where basically you get bonuses or a piece of the rake for signing up other players. And I guess what he did was sign up his mom, his dad, and other people, and then actually played as them, which was a big no-no and very much against their terms. That he agreed that he was an affiliate for others, but that he could not be an affiliate for himself. That they're not giving him free rake back. That what they're doing here is anyone who's not a family member that he refers to the site, that they will pay him you know, such and such percentage of whatever action is generated. So instead, he signed up his mom, signed up his dad, signed up other individuals, and played as all of them himself, and then got these big affiliate payments for supposedly referring other people. And that seems to be what's really pissing off the authorities there, and that seems to be what led to this. I think he made something obscene like 147,000 British pounds from these affiliate accounts. That shows you how actively he was playing. Now, this is a period of five years. So I guess he was make he got uh, about thirty thousand pounds per year in affiliate payments, and that's really what got the authority angry apparently, and really made them uh, consider this fraud. Because he entered a contract to refer others to the site, agreed that it would not be him playing or any family members playing. And then that's exactly what he did. He signed up family members, signed up other people, and played as all of them. Actually played himself and got the affiliate payments. And then they found out as well that he was colluding with multi-accounts at the same time. Kind of Z. Justin style. So... He's on trial at the moment. His father is also being charged with being complicit in this crime. Uh, His father lives with him. And I guess uh, his father was part of this whole scheme, apparently. But I, I guess they eventually decided to let the father off the hook. Um, the father did say that he gave his son documents to open accounts in his name, but said that, um, his son assured him that this was just, uh, you know, so he could change online handles or whatever. And he, he didn't, uh, he said he's not doing anything illegal and he believed his son. He didn't realize what he was doing. So I guess they have let the dad off right now from what I've seen, but the son, Darren Woods, is still on trial, and we'll see if uh, 
he ends up being convicted. I hope he does, if this is true about him. The prosecutor named Alasdair Campbell, not Alistair, but Alasdair, A-L-A-S-D-A-I-R, Alasdair Campbell, said that Woods admitted opening a number of different accounts in other people's names, but denied that he acted dishonestly in any way or that he opened them with a dishonest intention to make a financial gain for himself. But Alasdair Campbell said he cheated from the outset and he knew what he was doing was wrong from the outset. So the trial's going on. We will see what ends up happening. Oh, hold on. We have an update here from Forum Wars, who's given a lot of good content here in the chat room today. I'm going to have to give you guys an update. (laughs) This is a good update. Thank you, Forum Wars, for this. You guys are going to enjoy this update. This is about the breakout coin story. So sorry sorry to take a break from Daniel Woods here, but this is an important update. It's not about the Giants. Not going to talk about the Giants. Day one of the Breakout Coin sale. You can see it at BreakoutCoin.com. They have uh, really raised big money so far. They they really... Uh, this is going to be a very successful company. There's been a lot of excitement. The sale's been going on for uh, about a day now. Everyone's been rushing to buy breakout coins. According to breakoutcoin.com, their own website, the total investments of Bitcoin into breakout coin is equivalent to roughly... One million dollars. No, 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 no. They wish. No. So far, 43.09 Bitcoin have been converted to breakout coin. (laughs) Now, what's a Bitcoin worth right now? Like a little bit less than 400, like 390 something. So let's just give it credit for 400. So so basically uh, they've raised uh, like sixty four hundred dollars. Sorry, no, $16,000. They've raised $16,000 or so. You may say, hey, that's good for the first day. But number one, you have to imagine that a lot of insiders within the company bought their own breakout coin to make it look like there's a market. And number two, I think anyone who wants to buy them will have bought them at the very beginning. I don't think a 43 Bitcoin total investment was what they were looking for. I don't think $16,000 is going to buy a lot of marketing, office space, staff members, and licensing fees. But hey, it's still $16,000, still sixteen grand. Maybe I should sell those poker fraud alert coins. Maybe that's my way out of having to play limit hold'em for the rest of my life. All right. 
form where saying it's uh, $16,570, not good for a company, great for a scammer. But I don't think this is an outright scam. I, I think this is a dreamer idea. A scam is someone who, you know, a scam is when you sit out just to cheat people and then run off with the money. Here, I think they really believe this is going to work and be huge. And then they're going to be getting the rude shock of the truth situation, I think, within a few days. Yeah, seriously, serious is suggesting I sell Druff coins. He says it has a nice ring to it. I think, I think I'm going to start doing that. I think I'm going to sell Druff coins. It's a great idea. All righty. Nothing more to say about this uh, Daniel Woods clown, other than if they're, what they're saying about him is true. I hope he fries. I hope he goes to prison. I hope it's. Uh, an example. I hope they make an example of him and what happens to people who try to cheat in online poker. I mean, the affiliate thing he was doing was kind of scummy, but you know, I've seen worse than that. That's not the thing really bothering me that much. The thing bothering me is the multi-accounting of the same table. I mean, there's no excuse for that. No one could think that's okay. So, let me play you a little clip from Nolan Dalla about Daniel Coleman. Now, I've called Daniel Coleman a limousine liberal, and that's what he is. A limousine liberal is someone who has left-wing political views, but yet lives his life in a hypocritical fashion. A limousine liberal is someone who claims to understand the plight of the poor and the downtrodden while living a extravagant lifestyle of their own. A limousine liberal is someone who will publicly state political views that are very left-wing and progressive, but when it comes to living their actual life, they will live the opposite way if keeping to those views in real life inconveniences them. A good example of a limousine liberal was Perlot Friedman. Perlot Friedman was always spouting off about his left-wing views. He was always spouting off about his anti-corporate views, and yet when he went broke, he represented UB because he needed the money to keep playing poker. He needed the money to keep his Malibu lifestyle up. So he was willing to shill for the most corrupt corporation of them all after making years of anti-corporate statements. Whether you are a liberal or a conservative, you should have no respect for limousine liberals because they are hypocrites. They don't practice what they preach. They're the liberal equivalent of the conservatives who will make statements about what is amoral, what is sinful, and then do those things themselves. The ones that say being gay is a sin when they're secretly gay themselves. 
the ones who rail on about the evils of prostitution and then hire prostitutes themselves, those are the hypocritical conservatives. And then you have the limousine liberals on the other side, like Perlot Friedman and like Daniel Coleman. Now, Daniel Coleman hasn't uh, supported scam companies, but at the same time, he bashes poker as being a bad thing, as being an unhealthy thing, as being a bad thing for society, as being something that is predatory, where you win money from people who can't afford to lose it, and yet that's exactly what he does for a living. That's exactly how he has so many millions of dollars at the age of 23, by doing exactly that and continuing to do exactly that, and yet bashes what he does as being bad, and yet keeps doing it. So here is Nolan Dalla on the Poker Night in America show, a little segment where he rants about that. Uh, I guess he does this on every Poker Night in America. It's just a little entertaining segment. I don't ever watch that show, but uh, this is part of the episode. And I'll just let you take a listen. Hmm. And it won't load. Trying to play a YouTube clip and it won't load. Here we go. Daniel Coleman has said poker is bad. Daniel Coleman has insinuated, don't go into poker, don't play poker, it's bad, it's wrong, it's it's just self-destructive. Is he right? I don't think so. How can a man that has won almost $21 million in three tournaments the last four or five months say poker's bad? Are you kidding me? Seriously? Is that what you're saying? Poker's bad? This has provided a person that's 23 years old with a chance to be here. I've never heard of this guy, and he's winning $21 million. That's more than anybody in the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, the Major League Baseball. $21 million in what? Four months? And he's saying poker is bad? Give me some bad. Give me some of that horrible tragedy. Give me some sense of like, if poker's awful, I'll take it. Give me this awful situation called poker. I'll take it, Daniel Coleman. If you don't want it, I will. I'm Nolan Dalla, and that's my two cents. <laughs> Amen to that, Nolan. Even though you bashed me six years ago, about 60 minutes, saying I was irresponsible to criticize Full Tilt and others, saying that they may be acting dishonestly too, and we just don't know it yet. I'll give you credit for this one. You're right on here. You have no right to criticize something as being bad as you do it yourself. Now, if you quit it, yeah, I guess you can criticize it. Of course, if it really was that bad and you shouldn't have been partaking that activity and you made all that money, you should give it away to charity or to some sort of worthy cause. You shouldn't just keep it and then criticize it. But he's still playing poker. He's still playing. He's still winning a lot of money. He's still beating the people that, quote, can't afford to lose it. And yet, poker is bad. And yet, poker is a waste of time. And yet, too many people are focusing on poker, according to him. He's just someone who I believe is guilty, not is guilty, but feels guilty about all the money he's made so quickly at such a young age. 
He looks at all the money he has and said, what did I really do to deserve this? What work did I put in? He drives by and sees people working hard outside eight hours a day to make a small fraction of what he makes and says, why do I deserve this money just for playing a game? And he feels guilty. Not guilty enough to give the money back. Not guilty enough to degrade his lifestyle and give the money off to charity but guilty enough to get on the internet and rant about how bad poker is and refuse to be on ESPN promoting it. You can't do something, benefit from it, and then say it's bad. You lose the right to comment on that when you take part in it. Now, Beer and Poker saying what... I thought at first when I watched this that, uh, number one, he didn't really win $21 million. Number one, you had to subtract his buy-ins from there. Number two, uh, he was staked for a lot of that money, so he had to give a lot of that to his backers. And also, uh, top sports stars get more than that, like uh, Clayton Kershaw, for example, the hero of the postseason, the, uh, the pitcher who shuts them out every time he goes out in a postseason game. <laughs> He, he's being paid $30 million a year. And, you know, he's earning it during the regular season. It's the postseason. I think the seventh inning is the problem for him. But anyway, he's making more than $21 million. But uh, let's uh, move on to the editorial. Final segment of the show. If you want to call in, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. If you want to make a river phone call, this is the time to do it. I was talking with my mom about this show. She asked, are you still doing your radio show? I said, yes. She says, well, do people call in during the show? I said, sometimes. She says, what do you do if nobody calls? And I said, well, I, I don't really care. Like, I just I just get on and talk, I told her. I said, I just get on and talk. If someone calls in, I'll stop talking and I'll take their call. But I don't require calls to do the show. It's not a call-in show. It's a... Uh, just more of a, a rant show. It's a content show where I just talk about things and occasionally take phone calls. So here's my editorial. It's about civil forfeiture. I'm going to play a little clip about civil forfeiture that I thought was uh, very entertaining and actually very true. And then I'll talk about what you can do as a poker player to prevent yourself from being a victim of civil forfeiture. And I'll tell you, if you are a poker player, you are much more likely to be a victim of it than the average citizen. And I'll explain why. This is Last Week Tonight with with, uh, John Oliver. I don't usually, I kind of see him as a poor man's John Stewart for the most part, but sometimes he puts out good stuff. The police. They protect us, they serve us, and they provide us with an endless source of TV show one-liners. Rock, paper, scissors, gun. Well, I know Serena Williams, but I know one thing. It's all in the wrist. Who'd want to cut your penis off? Take a number. Okay. Now, you laugh, but admit it, you want to watch the rest of that episode right now. Now, look, public 
Trust in the police is one of the most vital elements in a civilized society. But for many Americans, that trust has been undermined by a procedure called civil forfeiture. Now, I know it sounds like a Gwyneth Paltrow euphemism for divorce, but, <laughs> but incredibly, it's actually even worse than that. Civil asset forfeiture is really a mechanism by which the uh, state and federal government can seize people's property without having to convict them of a crime. Most people can't afford to hire a lawyer to challenge it. It's really legalized robbery by law enforcement. And think about it, that is a tough crime to report to the police. Uh, give me a description of what the guy looked like. Well, to be honest, he looked a lot like the guy currently asking me what the guy looked like. <laughs> And if you think this sounds bad, just wait until you see how it looks. Because the Washington Post recently published a major investigation featuring stories like that of this man, who was driving from Michigan to San Francisco with $2,400 in cash that his dad had lent him to start a new job when he was pulled over in Nevada. I gave him my license and registration, and then as he was looking at that information, he asked me how much money I was traveling with. Lee told him about the money his dad gave him, which he kept in the trunk. He, he told me to turn on my air vents on high and roll up my windows and get out of the car because he was going to run a canine around it. Dove didn't find drugs, but he did find the $2,400. He said, no, I'm going to keep the money because I've concluded through my investigation here that you are traveling from Michigan to California to purchase drugs. Wow. I mean, there is so much wrong there, including the fact that any policeman who genuinely believes you need to travel from Michigan to California <laughs> to purchase drugs needs to be introduced to the concept of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. <laughs> OK? It's right there. And, and the problem is, stories like that are, are surprisingly common. In fact, since 9-11, under just one program, police have taken $2.5 billion in the course of over 61,000 seizures of cash alone from people who, and this is the mind-blowing part, were not charged with a crime. That is the sort of police behaviour that we laugh at other countries for, along with their accents and silly hats. <laughs> the way civil forfeiture generally works is that if the police believe they have a preponderance of the evidence that suggests your property was or could be used in a crime, they may confiscate it. And it gets even weirder. Many folks are unfamiliar with the idea of civil forfeiture, which is actually um, a, a case brought against directly against a piece of property where you don't need to be proven guilty of a crime for your goods to be taken away. Exactly. You don't need to be charged with a crime because it's not you that's on trial, it's your stuff. That's why these cases have historically had eye-catching names, such as, and all of these are real, United States versus $8,850 in US currency, United States versus an article consisting of 50,000 cardboard boxes, more or less, each containing one pair of clacker balls, and United States versus approximately 64,695 pounds of shark fins. Which must have been an amazing court case. And do you see those shark fins in the room right now? Yes! There they are! There they are! All right, so you get the point here. And, and everything he's saying there is true. Basically, the police can take whatever assets you have if they can provide some sort of super flimsy evidence or theory when I say evidence, it doesn't have to be real evidence. It's just a, a theory or a belief that that property was used in a crime or obtained through criminal means. 
So if you have cash on you and they don't believe that you obtain the cash legally, they take it. If you own a business and they believe that people coming into your business have done illegal things, they take it. For example, they recently took a man's motel in Massachusetts because uh, you know people were staying there and uh, bringing prostitutes there or whatever. Um, if they think that something was going on at your house that was illegal, even if they don't have very strong proof or any proof, they can take your house. Sounds crazy. Sounds like something that could not happen in 2014 United States, but it could and does. Now, where poker players are most susceptible, as you might guess, has to do with the cash part. It is very common for poker players to bring large sums of cash to various venues where they want to play poker. Sometimes you're just driving a short distance down to the local casino. Sometimes you're driving a long way to a tournament. But it is common that you will be traveling at some point with four figures, five figures, even six figures worth of cash. Now, I've done it before. In fact, I once traveled with $147,000 in my car in cash. I don't do that anymore, so don't try to shoot me as I'm driving or carjack me and steal my $147,000. But a long time ago, I did when I closed one safety deposit box and moved the cash to another. Point is, uh, I know I have driven many times with cash in my car when I am on the way to somewhere where I'm going to gamble usually to play poker. I know many of you have done that as well. And I've always believed that my only fear regarding the money disappearing would be either if I was held up somehow by a criminal who then found what was in my car and stole it, or if my car was stolen. For example, if I pull over to get something to eat and someone steals my car and luckily finds my money. Or... Maybe the fluke case where I'd get in some kind of accident, be knocked out cold because the accident is bad enough, and then the paramedics who show up find the money there and decide to help themselves to it while I'm unconscious, or maybe even dead. Those were the ways I figured it was possible I might lose my money. I never, never, never considered that the police would just take it from me. Fortunately, this never happened, but it could have. I thought that the only thing I would have to fear with cash would be bringing cash in and out of the country, which I've done as well. But you are required to declare when you are bringing $10,000 or more into the U.S., and many other countries have a similar requirement. And if you don't declare that, then the government can seize it from you. But I always believed that within the U.S., you have a right to drive around with as much cash as you want. You don't have to declare it. You don't have to report it to anyone. You don't have to announce it to anyone. You can just drive around with it while it might be taking a risk, maybe in some cases foolhardy, but you are legally allowed to do so, and there's no way that money would ever be taken to you, taken from you by law enforcement. But that is not true. Not only does it happen, but there are now actually stings set up to find cars that they think probably have cash in them and take the money. There are actual programs there to where officers are only out to look for one thing, and that is for cars to pull over, ask them if they have cash, and take it. That's all. 
Now, they don't pocket the money, these officers. They're not, these aren't rogue police officers. These aren't corrupt cops. These are cops working under government officials who tell them to seize this money and put it in the city coffers, the county coffers, the state coffers, the federal coffers. The government gets your money. Not these individual officers, but the governments that these officers work for get your money, your assets that they seize, and they are looking for you. They are looking to pull you over to steal your money. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not being a conspiracy theorist. This is true. It's been investigated by the Washington Post. It is true. It just happened to two poker players from California who were driving in Iowa after they had just been to a poker tournament. Now, how do you prevent this? Because it does happen, and you have to watch out for it. This is not just fear-mongering. This does happen. It might happen to you. So how do you prevent it? Well, what these officers typically do when they're out to look for this. I'm not necessarily talking about highway patrol officers that are really out to give tickets. I'm talking about ones that are looking to do this. There are certain officers in certain cities working for certain police departments or certain counties that want to do this and only this. This is the reason they're out there. They look primarily for out-of-state cars partially because out-of-state cars are more likely to be traveling with assets because they're going somewhere. And usually, if you're going a long distance, you're more likely to have assets or cash on you. And also because when you're out-of-state, you feel more uncomfortable. You feel more vulnerable. You're not as familiar with your surroundings. You're not as familiar with uh, what the laws might be. You're a little more afraid to fight things. They look for out-of-state cars. They look for whatever other indications that they might have that the particular car that they are looking at might have cash in it. Then they pull over the car with some sort of really flimsy pretense. They can't say, we're pulling you over to take your money. They pull you over saying... You didn't signal when you changed lanes, even if you did. Or you were speeding, even if you weren't. They pull you over with some sort of BS pretense. Then they ask you, are you traveling with any cash in the car? This is becoming an increasingly common question. Are you carrying cash in the car? And if you say yes, they ask you where it is. Then they ask you where you got the money, why you have the money, why you're traveling with it. Then they will try to find evidence that your car has drugs in it, hoping that perhaps you do drugs recreationally and the drug-sniffing dog will find drugs. That's what happened to these guys in uh, California who actually had a medical marijuana card to legally smoke pot in California. So there was some very small remnants of pot in their car, not enough to be smoking, but like just, you know, very small remnants of pot they had smoked before. The dogs found that, and they used that as justification to take their money, like $100,000. So they hope to find some evidence of drugs, then they can claim you were taking the money to buy drugs. If they don't, then they still come up with some sort of flimsy explanation to take your money, as they did with this guy from Michigan driving from there to California who was pulled over in Nevada 
They found he had $2,400 that his dad gave him. And even with no evidence he was going to buy drugs and crossing all the way from Michigan to California to buy $2,400 worth of drugs, which is ludicrous, they took the money from him. And they take this money knowing that most people either are afraid to fight it or don't have the money to fight it or don't know how to fight it and just have to chalk it up to a loss. Now, how do you prevent this? Because if you have an out-of-state car, you have an out-of-state car. You can't prevent that. Well, the way you prevent this is, first of all, you have to understand when you're more likely to be a target, and that's when you're out-of-state. So be aware when you're not in your own state, when you have out-of-state plates, that you are more likely to be pulled over for this reason, especially on a highway, especially on a highway that is not part of a major city. This is less likely to happen in Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Chicago, Philadelphia. You're not going to see this in major cities, typically. You're going to see this in small towns in the middle of nowhere, or just in the, when you're driving on the road where there's no town and just a highway patrol. So be aware if you're in an area like that driving there that this may happen and be ready for it. Now, what do I mean by be ready for it? Well, if you get pulled over and they ask you, do you have cash in the car? You may think the proper answer is to be open and honest with the police. They pull you over. Is there any cash in the car? You're going to be tempted to tell them the truth. You may be afraid not to tell them the truth. You may be afraid you'll be thrown in some sort of -of out-of-state jail cell somewhere and they're going to throw away the key if you don't tell them the truth. You may be afraid if you don't tell them the truth, they're going to search your car and find the cash and then you're really going to be in hot water. But my suggestion is if they pull you over and you get that question, is there any cash in the car? The answer, no, there is not. And I suggest you hide the cash in the car. So it's not easy to find. Now, if they turn your car over and search it, yes, they'll probably find it. But you should not consent to any searches. And, uh, yeah, they have ways around that sometimes by, uh, you know, claiming they found drugs in the car, which I'll get to in a second. But you should do all you can to prevent them from searching the car. Do not consent to a search of the car. If they ask why you won't consent, say because uh, I've done nothing wrong and it's my right not to. And do not admit you're carrying any cash. If they ask how much money, money are you traveling with, say, uh, you know, whatever is in my wallet. You know, whatever's in your wallet, tell them is what you have. I have uh, $200 in my wallet and a bunch of credit cards. How are you going to support yourself? I'm, on my credit card, you'll say. Where are you going? Tell them honestly where you're going. Except a casino. Do not admit about the casino. So keep in mind wherever you're going... Make up something if it's a casino. So let's say you're driving uh, to Las Vegas and you get pulled over somewhere in northern Nevada. They say, where are you driving to? Don't say I'm going to gamble in Las Vegas. Uh, Say I'm going to visit my buddy in Henderson. Go to visit my girlfriend in Henderson. Met her online. Come up with some BS name. They're not going to check on it, trust me. Don't say you're going to gamble. Don't say you're going to a poker tournament. Nothing like that. Do not give them a reason to think that if they search your car, they'll find money. Make make yourself seem like a boring person who's going to some residential home 
visiting a relative, a girlfriend, or whatever. And not likely to have much money on you. If you are a professional poker player, do not admit that. They ask, what do you do for a living? Uh, Come up with something you're going to say. I work in insurance. I work in a restaurant, whatever. Come up with a profession. Be ready to answer questions about it. Do not admit you're a poker player. Do not admit you're going to gamble anywhere. Now, it sounds like I'm advocating here that you lie to the police, and that sounds pretty bad, but I'm not. I'm advocating in these specific spots where you are pulled over and you're asked these weird questions like, do you have cash in the car? What do you do for a living? Where are you heading? That's very suspect that they are about to hit you with a civil forfeiture and steal your money. They are trying to steal your money. They are trying to get information to steal your money. So do not cooperate. Now, yes, you're taking a small chance that it can get worse for you if they end up searching your car and find the money. But you always have an answer to that. You can tell them the truth. After you're caught, you can tell them the truth. You can say, I've heard about things like this. I didn't say I have cash here because I've heard about things like this where people are pulled over and their money is confiscated when they've done nothing wrong. In fact, go tell them to go look up on YouTube John Oliver Civil Forfeiture for that segment that aired on HBO. Tell them to watch that and you'll see why they will see why you were afraid to admit there's cash in the car. Because you're hearing that police departments are stealing people's cash in the name of civil forfeiture and you were afraid. You do not want to let them take it because at that point you have to prove that this money was obtained legitimately and it's sometimes hard to do that in poker. You win money in a poker game, there's not always a record of it, especially if it's not online. So it is hard sometimes to prove that the money in your car is money you won playing poker rather than money you got from a drug deal or some other sort of illicit purpose. Really, in this case, your stuff is guilty until it's proven innocent, and sometimes it's hard to prove it innocent. So the best way to do this, if pulled over, is to deny it exists. To be ready with a story. If you know you're going to be driving out of state, be ready with a story that sounds very ordinary, very boring, to where they're not going to want to search you. And do not consent to a search. Make it as tough as possible for them to search the car. I'm advocating this as a way to fight back, almost like an act of civil disobedience against civil forfeiture, because this is theft. Now, what about the drug thing? You have to be careful with the drug thing. Do not drive out of state with drugs in your car, or otherwise you will become a target. If you get pulled over and the drug-sniffing dog finds the drugs in your car, now they're going to be able to search it. Now they're going to have probable cause. Now they're going to find your cash. Now that they can make a legitimate-sounding case that you probably had this money to buy drugs or maybe even sold drugs, and it's going to be very tough for you to get it back. The guys in California who got pulled over in Iowa were fortunate in that they only had a trace amount of marijuana in the car and that they had a 
state medical marijuana card to smoke that marijuana while in California. So they had an easy answer. We haven't been smoking it here. We were smoking it in California where it was legal while our car was parked and a trace amount remained in the car because we had done that in the past. And we just came from a poker tournament. Here's proof we were just there. Here's proof we were playing the cash games. This is where the money was. That's why they got it back. But they spent $33,000 in legal fees to get back the $100,000. So if pulled over, do not tell the truth about having cash in your car. Do not tell the truth about being a professional poker player. Do not tell the truth about coming from or to a poker tournament or anywhere involving gambling. But be ready with a story that sounds boring, ordinary, and not like someone who would have cash in the car. And do not keep drugs in your car. Do not take a car on an out-of-state long drive if there are drugs in it or have been drugs in it recently. If you think your car could be sniffed by a dog and indicated as a drug car, then do not take that car. Rent a car. If you're going to take an out-of-state drive, maybe rent a car that does not have uh, this drug residue in it, or probably does not. You need to protect yourself. This is not far-fetched. It's happened to two poker players from California who had 100 KCs from them. Also, don't travel with more cash than you need. Maybe wire money to the casino you plan to go to. And then wire it back home. Pain in the ass, yeah, kind of, but it beats taking large sums of money across state lines and then uh, maybe being pulled over and had it seized. So... Do things like that, or maybe find a bank that's also in the state that you're going to, and then withdraw it there. I mean, you can't withdraw 100K from a bank typically. Usually you can only do, uh, you know, 5K at a time, depending on the bank. But try to find ways around driving with a lot of cash, and don't take more than you need. Sometimes it's tempting to just show up with a gigantic bankroll just in case you run into a high-limit game with a mega fish, but it's not worth it anymore. And same with flying, same with the airport. I used to take large sums of money in the airport flying domestically when I'd go to gambling venues. No no more, I'm not going to do that. TSA can do the same thing to you. Same civil forfeiture. So be careful. Be careful traveling with large sums of money now. This is increasing very much over time. This is something that's becoming big business. Civil forfeiture has existed for 30 years. But this segment by John Oliver was done on October 5th of this year. The poker players who got nailed in Iowa, I think it happened last year. This is all recent stuff. This has become a very, very big business to governments to steal money from its citizens. You've got to fight back. And the only way to fight back is to be ready with the right answers the answers that they don't want to hear and don't make yourself a target. 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. Got a question in the chat room. What do you do when you fly home from a poker trip and the FAA wants to know why you have such a wad you won't take it out in the security screening? Well, it's not the FAA. It would be the uh, TSA who would be asking that. And... uh, You can't just say, I'm not going to take what's in my pocket out. I'm not going to show you what's in my pocket. They won't let you fly that way. 
I would advise avoiding flying with a lot of money, domestic or otherwise. I would avoid it. You're always opening yourself up to having the money taken by the government, whether it's TSA, whether it's uh, customs, whether it's uh, local police, the FBI. There's, There's a lot of different agencies that want to take that money. And it's very tough to get it. It's easy to have an idealistic view that if I've done nothing wrong, they can't take my stuff. They can't take my money. If I've committed no crimes, they can't take my money. And if they do, I can get it back very fast. No, you can't. It took these guys in California $33,000 worth of legal fees to get back their money. Are you ready to spend that? And they at least had some good evidence on their side. Sometimes you may not have enough on your side to get it back. You may spend the money to get it back and fail. You just don't open yourself up to it. It would not surprise me if some of these police departments are aware of these poker tournaments and are aware of the highways used by people coming to and from these tournaments and actually sit on these highways and look to nail cars that they think are probably coming from these tournaments and pull them over. So be careful, especially out of state, especially coming from a tournament. Do not ever admit you have cash in your car. Make sure it's well hidden. Do not drive any car that's had drugs in it anytime recently. Protect yourself. S double says in chat, I'd taken 5K each time to Buffalo on trips to Canada and TSA just wanted to see it out of my pocket. Well, that's true. I mean, that can happen. I'm not saying they're going to take it every time. Um, TSA, they're really mainly there to prevent terrorism. They're mainly there to prevent someone from blowing up the plane. So yeah, they may just say, okay, you have 5K, no problem, go ahead. But they also may call someone over from the police department who's going to question you about what that 5K is for. And it's not so simple just to say, oh, I'm a poker player, look me up. Terrence Chan, you can look up his blog, he got caught at that same place, at the Buffalo-Niagara Falls uh, border between U.S. and Canada. He got stopped there for eight hours. And he kept saying, look me up, I'm a poker player. People know me, Terrence Chan. They didn't care. Took him... I don't think they seized anything, but it took them eight hours there. Forum Wars saying this stuff has, quote, hot quarters where it's happening big time, like northern Arizona. Yeah. And apparently, you know, wherever this was in Nevada where they nailed this guy in the uh, in this John Oliver piece. It's always kind of middle of nowhere type areas where they're nowhere near a big city. And the cop just kind of appears out of nowhere, pulls you over, and then asks you a bunch of questions, a bunch of intrusive questions. Just don't ever admit to money. And that contradicts what people expect. You know, you're taught by your parents and and by everyone else, be honest with the police, and you won't get in trouble. Don't lie to the police, and everything will end up fine. But it's not true in this case. In this case, you have to lie to the police, or otherwise they're going to steal your money. 
Now, this is not the same as Terrence Chan. People are saying in the chat room, yeah, he was going between countries. But th- this is a newer thing that's happening. It's been, it's been going on to some, for some degree for, th- for 30 years, to some degree, has been happening. But the civil forfeiture angle, nailing people on the roads, that's a newer thing. It's happening more and more with every passing day because local governments are realizing how much revenue it can bring in. They even get in cahoots with federal agents in order to dodge any kind of local or state laws preventing this. So there's a lot of tricks they use to get your money that you worked hard for. There's a process known as equitable sharing that allows state and federal governments to share the profits from these seizures. So what local police departments do is they find targets for seizure, they trump up some BS reason to make a civil forfeiture, then they bring in federal agents to help with the seizure, and then they allow federal civil forfeiture laws to take precedent over any local or state laws protecting citizens. And then all three governments, local, state, and federal, profit by sharing. This is very real. It really happens. It's not a conspiracy theory. And the equitable sharing payments from the federal government to the states is at an all-time high right now. And it has tripled, more than tripled, since 2002. It's spiking upwards, like like Bitcoin was doing in December. (laughs) Rand Paul, who might run for president in 2016, he is currently trying to fight this, believe it or not. He's actually attempting to put a stop to it, pass laws against this. We'll see if he's successful. Senator Rand Paul. It's Ron Paul's son. This is not just an issue where Democrats or Republicans oppose it. This is one of the few political issues where Republicans and Democrats agree, and they for the most part, feel like we do. They think this is wrong. They think it should be stopped. They think this is immoral. They think this should be illegal. But there are so many bureaucratic governmental forces keeping this in place that it's very hard to attack and very hard to stop. And uh, props to Rand Paul for trying to put an end to this. It's a very hard thing to reverse at this point. But I hope they do. It's getting worse and worse. The Washington Post did a study on this and found that um, with 400 stops that they reviewed, 400 traffic stops where civil forfeiture occurred, that not one of those 400 were legitimate. Not one out of 400 were legitimate seizures. So be careful. Follow my advice there. Be ready with an answer what you do for a living with where you're going. I mean, look, Let's say you're driving to Las Vegas across a few states. Honestly, what I would do is I I just search on Facebook and just find some girl that lives in Las Vegas or lives in Henderson. Doesn't matter if you know her or not. Just find her name, have her name ready, and say, okay, I'm I'm going to visit her. 
have her name ready, say, I met her online, it's my girlfriend, I'm going to go see her. They're, they're not going to call her and check. They're not going to think you make that up. You know, if you, you have the name and everything ready. Or if you really know someone there, that's a good excuse to use. But, you know, if you don't know someone, just find someone in the phone book. Find someone online listings, whatever. Just find anyone. Have their name ready to give as where you're going. Have a fake profession ready, or maybe a profession you used to have before playing poker. Have it all ready to recite, and they're not going to search you, probably. But if you think you can tell the police, oh, yeah, I, I have 10K in the back of my car, but, you know, I'm a professional poker player. You can look me up. I'm bringing it to the Bellagio because I want to play in their 1020 game. Yeah, they're, they're going to take it. They're going to take it from you. It's going to be the end of your bankroll. So be careful. 775-FRAUD-55-775-372-8355. If you want to make the River phone call. Otherwise, we're going to end this show. Some people blame the civil forfeiture on the Patriot Act, but I don't think that's fair. It's true the Patriot Act has made it easier, but the Patriot Act goes way back, and the civil forfeiture stuff just started to really get bad recently. And this is more of local governments realizing that this is a cash cow for them than anything having to do with uh, the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act, whether you support it or not, at least had the good-hearted attempt to keep us safe. You may think it's wrong, you may think it is uh, going too far or it's violating people's rights, but at least its basis was something noble. This does not have a basis in anything noble. This has the basis in stealing from people. That's it. Now, are there any legitimate uses of civil forfeiture? Yes, and obviously, when the laws were passed for this, it wasn't passed in the way of, hey, we're going to steal money from U.S. citizens. No. Uh, It was passed with the following type of examples. Uh, Let's say there's a strongly suspected terrorist who we know is a terrorist, we just don't have enough to arrest him yet, and he receives a shady wire from a shady source of a large amount of cash that we know he's going to use for terrorist activities. It would be nice if we could just seize his money, even if we can't charge him yet, even if we don't have enough evidence to charge him yet, if we know, if we have a lot of evidence, but just not quite enough to arrest him, that this was money sent to him by terrorists for terrorist acts, we should be able to take it. We shouldn't wait until we can build enough of a case, and in the meantime, uh, he uses the money uh, for terrorist purposes. Sounds good, right? Or what about a drug dealer that they catch with $4 million and he has no way to explain how he got $4 million, but you only find him with $4 million. You don't find him with any drugs. You find him with $4 bucks, And he says, hey, I, I made it and makes up some bullshit story, which he can't prove. And you know that he's a major drug dealer. You know that's where he got the $4 million, but you can't prove it at the moment. You say, okay, maybe seizing it isn't a bad idea. Maybe seize the $4 million, and if the drug dealer can come back and prove in court that uh, he made the $4 million legitimately in some way, then he can have it back. And that sounds on the surface like it's okay. The problem is 
Like many of these once well-meaning laws that are passed, they get abused. So it went from let's target these obvious criminals that we don't quite have enough for a criminal case yet that'll stick and take their assets that we know were ill-gotten and that we know they'll never be able to fight and get back because they know they're ill-gotten and they, they know they can't prove otherwise. It went from that to, hey, let's pull over random cars on the highway that we think have money and we'll just steal it from them and claim, and make up some false charges that they got the money from drugs and let them prove otherwise. So the whole thing's a bad idea. They have to scrap the whole thing because it's been abused. They have to scrap the whole thing because it has so many holes that can be and have been badly abused. The whole thing has to be gone. If they want to rewrite it at some point and make it much stricter to where it cannot be abused like this, fine. But at this point, the whole thing has to be gone. I really hate stories like that. I mean, I I hate when there's any crime against poker players, but I hate when the crime is being perpetrated by the police and by the government. They're supposed to be here to protect us, not steal from us, not find ways to take 30-year-old laws and twist them as a way to steal our money and assets and set up stings on stretches of highway just to steal people's money, and that's the police doing it, and not even corrupt Bad Apple police, but police working under orders from the government above them. Unbelievable that happening today. You know, uh, if all the family was still on, I bet they would have done a civil forfeiture episode where Archie gets his money taken in some way. (laughs) That's totally the type of episode they would have done. So, look, there's not much we can do. I right, hold the phone here. Hold on. Hold on. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Jeff. I just wanted to say it's Joe Cata. Please get his name right, dude. All right. I'll try. You, okay, waited, you, waited, you waited the whole show to tell me that? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Bye. That's our only call of the day. Someone criticizing the way I say Joe Cata. Sorry, Joe Cata. Which I should have said is Joe Cata. There we go. Happy? Can't believe you interrupted the All in the Family end song to tell me that. Alrighty. At least I got a phone call. At least I can't say I went through the whole show without a phone call. No host, no phone calls. I feel so lonely here. At least I got a chat room. At least I have a chat room. At least I can say people are there listening to me. Oh! This is important. I'm not going to be here on Tuesday next week. No Tuesday show next week. It'll be on Wednesday instead. It'll be eight days from now on Wednesday, October 29th. That'll be the next show, not Tuesday, October 28th. We are delaying it one day. I will be unavailable on Tuesday to do the show. So keep that in mind. It'll be at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, October 29th. Then we will return to our normal Tuesday schedule on uh, November 4th. So, thank you for listening once again to the Druff and Friends show. I am Todd Dan Druff Wittellis. However you're listening to me, 
whether it's live or in the archives, that's just fine. Someone asked me to stop saying archives and to say it like archives, but I, I'm not going to do that. It's not going to happen. The show, it'll always be the archives, and I don't care if that bothers you. It's my prerogative as the main host of Poker Front Alert Radio. But if you want to co-host with me, you can do it. Just don't say archives. No, sorry, don't say archives. Say archives. See, now you're confusing me. Good night, everybody. I will see you in eight days. Shalom. Be careful on those roads. <laughs>